Hola, weirdos. This is Herman, coming back with another Patreon episode that we're releasing free to the public, to you, our weird listeners out there. Hopefully, you'll like it as much as you might have liked Radio Free Hyboria, uh, episode one, which we uh, released on this, this past Monday. But this time around, it's something completely different. When we cobbled together this little show sometime last year, I think in 2021, around March or April, um, this was a very emotional thing for me to to put together because I hold these characters very close to my heart. They were some of the ones that I read more frequently than most in the 19, uh, late 1970s and 80s. And they are street-level Marvel characters from the Bronze Age. And I think you know who they are, probably. Luke Cage, Power Man, had a big influence on me growing up as a white kid in apartheid South Africa. The first black role model that I could look up to. And uh, he had a lot to do with me eventually not turning out like uh, most of my friends and peers. And then, of course, Iron Fist, Danny Rand... Always loved his look, always loved all of his stories, and especially when he teamed up with Luke in the buddy comic from the 80s, just called Power Man and Iron Fist. And that would have eventually have formed a part of uh, Dragons and Jive, but Billy and I never made it that far. Still, we're going to be talking a lot of Luke Cage. There's going to be eight episodes of him and Iron Fist. And then finally, of course, my absolute favorite martial arts character of all time, and that is, of course, Shang-Chi, the master of Kung Fu. And for a while there in the 80s, the Shang-Chi series was my absolute favorite series. It eclipsed Doctor Strange, The Defenders, almost everything for me. Um, but all things must come to an end, as you listeners know. So Shang-Chi did. But uh, I read it till the end. And I only recently picked up the complete run, so there were always some issues, key issues that I missed. But right now you can get the Omnibuy. There are four Omnibuses out collecting everything, plus some epic collections coming out too. So hopefully Marvel will hold on to the license for old Shang-Chi and his uh, cast of characters for a while longer so we can see more reprints coming. But uh, I'm going to leave you there, listeners. Um, here is the show. This is episode one of something we decided to call Dragons and Jive. So hopefully you will enjoy that. Take care. Dragons and Jive, Episode 1. I'm your host, Billy D. Alongside me is Herman. How are you, buddy? Hey, Billy, man. I'm great. I'm glad to be back with uh, you, my ever-present podcasting partner, attempting yet another Patreon show <laughs> for our mm-hmm. listeners. 
And for <laughs> us, since we're greedy, selfish, selfish bastards, <laughs> greedy, selfish honkies, <laughs> in this mm-hmm. case. Yep. No, we're doing this for for fun as well, right? So it's a joy to talk about these characters specifically, as you know, some of our listeners might know from the title "Dragons and Jive," and from you know what we've been hinting at on Twitter, and just from the mm-hmm. logo of the show, the the, the, <laughs> the art. This is going to be about uh, Marvel in the 70s, the Bronze Age, and three properties we really like. Uh, two are heaped together under the Marvel Kung Fu titles. And one is, of course, one of their black exploitation titles. But, you know, it's it's unfair to call it that. It, it definitely stemmed out of the black exploitation craze. So the Kung Fu titles, of course, we're going to be talking about. Billy, I'll let you introduce them. What are those two? Uh, Shang-Chi and Iron Fist. That's right. The Master of Kung Fu mm-hmm. and the Living Weapon Iron Fist. That's going to be fun. And then, uh, mm-hmm. of course, this all stemmed out of the, you know, Kung Fu action movie craze that started in the 70s, um, obviously because of Bruce Lee and the Kung Fu TV series starring David Carradine. But, you know, for many other reasons, too, which we'll get into while we do the show. And then, of mm-hmm. course, the um, second part will be about Luke Cage, you know, the hero for hire later known as Power Man, and that stemmed out of, you know, the black exploitation movie craze. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, he was a groundbreaking character in many ways because he was the first uh, black hero who had his own title. But, in fact, there were many that came before him, a Black Panther being the most notable one, introduced by uh, Stanley and Jack Kirby in the 60s in Fantastic Four. So we're going to talk about all of that, listeners, here on Dragons and Jive. All right, so oh, yeah. the first uh, thing I want to ask you, though, if you consider uh, the first title we're going to be doing, which is um, Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, I want to ask you, what's your history with this character and with, with this uh, title in particular? Well, the first time I ever was introduced to uh, Shang-Chi, it was definitely in, um, I think it was a Marvel 2-in-1 either Marvel 2-in-1 or Marvel Team-Up, one of those uh, anthology, you know, crazy titles with I'm pretty sure it was with the thing, and I'm pretty sure there was a story where it was Shang Chi and the thing, and I think Hydra was involved because I can see the cover on my in in my brain here, and Shang Chi is like choking one guy and kicking another guy in the face, <laughs> and you know, doing you know his 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 martial arts you know deal uh, on the cover, and I think the thing's there, and I feel like there's another hero too, like almost like there was three heroes on that cover but that's where I was introduced to him and I thought he was great because I was a sucker for the whole martial arts craze when I was a kid, you know it was still kind of going strong when I was a little kid you would see a lot of the Bruce Lee films on television, you know, all the time and I watched them and I ate them up I loved them, so I already had a huge love for, uh, you know, the martial arts, so when I saw this character I was like whoa, what is this guy all about now? course by then you know marvel didn't have the license anymore for the sax romer you know yeah characters so it was just yeah it was just shang chi there was you know none of the uh none of his uh father's exploits or anything like that so it was a little bit different but uh yeah we're gonna get into it and talk right about uh right now about his uh his father too and all that in this first uh yeah yeah this this first uh issue definitely will cover that and yeah we're gonna give a lot of background history about you know, um, all of the various elements that made it a great title. And also that, you know, like mm-hmm. you mentioned, that uh, stopped it from being reprinted for a while there. But, you know, for me, yeah. uh, I can't... This is one of the weird titles that I can't really pinpoint exactly 
where I encountered it first. I know there were a couple of Master of Kung Fu's in, you know, this box I got from my uncle, you know, which started me uh, on my comic book journey. Uh, but I can't remember which one I read first. There were at least six or seven, you know, in there. And, um, oh, you know, there were some of the early earlier Shang-Chi's. I'd say the, 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 the mid-60s, mid-70s. And then later on, I started picking, you know, Shang-Chi off of the shelf. But then it was already at the almost at the end of the run. You know, I started collecting Shang-Chi off of the shelf around uh, issue 110, you know, Belisa. So that was already when... Okay. Doug Munch and Gene Day were were not well. They weren't winding down the title, but you know the issue. It would only be another you know two years before the title would then be cancelled. So, you know, I I didn't know that at the time. For me, every Marvel title I picked up that had a number as huge as like a hundred and ten <laughs> in in terms of issues, I thought they would last forever. You know, because you know you <laughs> saw you'd see other titles like Mighty Thor or Iron Man or the, the Avengers, and they would have numbers even greater than this. So. You know, you mm-hmm. you expect these titles to run longer. So I was pretty yeah. devastated when, you know, it ended up being cancelled. But, um, you know, I can't really pinpoint my specific uh, first issue that I read from Shang-Chi. I do have one of uh, my favorite issues of all time, which is contained in this run, which is issue 114, which I discussed on a previous show of Into the Weird. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of my single favorite issues of, of uh, you know, ever because of the art, because of the storyline, and, and it also got me into being fascinated with the East, and that's why eventually I ended up, you know, um, moving here to, to Asia. So, you know, mm-hmm. Shang-Chi, great character, and Billy, now I want to ask you, you've, you've already said you were a fan of martial arts movies and stuff. Um, uh, mm-hmm. You know, if you read about the history of Shang-Chi from the people who created them, most notably, you know, Steve Englehart and Jim Starlin. They're the ones who initially came up with the idea for the character because they were fans of the Kung Fu action movie craze that started in the early 70s. I want to mm-hmm. ask you something. How how much of an impact did the TV show Kung Fu starring David Carradine have on you? Could you, was that even in your, it wasn't in your time, I'm sure, but there must have been reruns later on. Um, did did that register with you at all? Not a whole lot because I got to be oh. honest with you. I watched a ton of TV when I was a kid, and I don't remember that being on um, very often. Like I, it's you know wasn't it must have been on a channel that I didn't regularly you know watch because I really didn't see much of it until way long after, you know, uh, like long long time after the show was uh, was over. Because I think the way I found out about it was. Um, he was in David Carradine was in a film with uh, Chuck Norris, a mar- one of his martial arts films. Right, and I was like, "Oh wow, this guy seems pretty cool." Like, and you know, you look into it, you say, "Oh wow, he was on this show," and you know, he was into martial arts and stuff like that. So that's how I found out about that show. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Me too. I I saw it in the DVD stores, or I should say, the VHS stores we had in <laughs> the early eighties. Um, I saw the series, you know, on a on a couple of uh, cassettes you could um, rent it and watch it, but I never. I did, I think, once or twice, but it didn't really do much for me because at that point in time, I had already seen all of Bruce Lee's filmography and I had, mm-hmm. had gotten into other things too, you know, martial arts related, um, Shaolin yeah. Temple and, and all of those uh, and the early Jackie Chans. So, you know, for me, it, that wasn't the reason why. But, I, but for me personally, why I started liking martial arts was probably because of the movie The Karate Kid. Um but, you know, I had yeah. been aware of martial arts a long time before The Karate Kid, but that's when I really became obsessed. And that's when I went back and tried to collect all of the 
even though Shang-Chi has nothing to do with karate, it's all Kung Fu, mm-hmm. I started yeah. obsessively collecting the back issues that I could find from him. But it took me a, a very long time before I could fill up the run. I think I only, in the early 2000s, managed to, to, to completely fill it up. And uh, not a lot of them are in great condition either, <laughs> since they stem from my youth. <laughs> but, um, you know, so we're both fans of this character. We've talked about him on a previous episode of in- Into the Weird, where he had a, a team-up with Man-Thing. <laughs> yeah. And that was a fun issue. So, you know, we're mm-hmm. firmly established as fans of Shang-Chi. Now, a little bit of a history lesson here, folks. Like I mentioned, Starlin, Jim Starlin, and uh, Steve Engel are two of our favorites. They were instrumental in bringing this character into being uh, they're the ones who went to late night movie matinees in New York and they love to watch these uh, uh, martial arts movies but if we go a little bit further back right Billy we should really credit Bruce Lee more because Bruce Lee um, when he was still in Hollywood in the 1960s 1966 he was Kato on the Green Hornet show and mm-hmm. that's where he really brought martial arts to the the attention, you know, of of the general public, I think, you know, um, and then after that, of course, uh, he was going to star as the, you know, the the main the lead in the Kung Fu uh, TV series, which he helped to develop. But of course, they wouldn't cast an Asian American or an Asian actor. Well, he was an Asian American; he had American citizenship as well. But they wouldn't cast him because of racial issues, but also because see, they thought it wouldn't sell. So he eventually left Hollywood uh, frustrated and went to Hong Kong, where it turns out he was famous because of the Green Horn and TV show. In fact, in Hong Kong, it was known as the Kato show. <laughs> Officially, <laughs> you know, that's how they, they, they uh, screened it because of, you know, Bruce Lee. And they, if you look at those early episodes, Billy, which I have done, I don't know if you have done, Bruce Lee really steals the show. I mean, the Green Horn, it mm-hmm. looks like, he can't do anything right, you know, he's, mm-hmm. but Bruce Lee is the one who shows up, saves his hide most of the time and also uh, demands attention by doing these amazing uh, stunt like Kung Fu feats. I mean, he did his own stunts, well, most of them uh, in those uh, Green Hornet episodes. So, you know, he brought Kung Fu to the attention or martial arts to the attention of the wider general audience. Yep. And then when he went to Hong Kong, of course... Um, he teamed up with the Shaw Brothers and he made a couple of great movies. The Big Boss, you know, Fist of Fury and uh, Way of the Dragon. Um, uh, early, you know, team up with Chuck Norris there, or I should say a fight against Norris. <laughs> and then, of course, eventually Enter yeah. the Dragon, which um, w- which Hollywood then, you know, wanted to distribute because they saw that Bruce Lee was doing so well in Hong Kong and in Asia in general. And, you know, they, then they courted him. And but unfortunately, mm-hmm. Bruce Lee died right, Billy, in 1973, long before he could see his full fame uh, realized. You know the the fame that he was always yeah. striving for. Yeah, but you know, um, in terms of uh, how this impacted the development of Master and Kung Fu, of course, Bruce Lee was first and foremost in the minds of of these guys. But it wasn't their sole inspiration. I mean, there were. Uh, the Kung Fu TV series, of course, being credited as a huge uh, part of the inspiration. Uh, especially in 1972 TV movie that was then followed by the series. And then there was also a movie, um, I don't know if you know about this film, Billy Billy Jack. <laughs> it sports your namesake, oh, yeah. right? About a cowboy, a peace-loving guy, you know, like um, a pacifist, but he's a cowboy who kicks butt Asian style, <laughs> kind of. Mm-hmm. 
And then, um, <laughs> then eventually, Five Fingers of Death, which had a major impact uh, on, in the, you know, in the states as a martial arts film, introducing people to kung fu. It was originally a film called King Boxer uh, by the Shaw Brothers, and then um, you know they brought it over to the states. It was retitled Five Fingers of Death, and that would also eventually influence Roy Thomas into creating Iron Fist. But, you know, because of Five Fingers of Death, it really made the American public ripe for, you know, anything Kung Fu related. So Jim Starlin and uh, Steve Englehart, they were enraptured by this idea. So they, you know, obviously created this character and uh, Stan and Roy were going for it because they were definitely keeping an eye on the trends. And that's how they had, you know, grown Marvel up until this point in time, you know, and um, this was something they were going to get into. So it actually started with uh, the black exploitation uh, uh, era, right, Billy, where they started to to look at the trends and see what people are into, and then they developed Luke Cage. But we, you and I, we've decided to talk about Shang Chi first, so that we don't have to talk too much mm-hmm. Kung Fu in two segments following on from each other. So we're going to do mm-hmm. Master of Kung Fu, then we're going to talk Luke Cage, and then we're going to get to Iron Fist. Mm-hmm. So, Billy, then a little bit more uh, that you already uh, hinted at. Um, after Englehart and um, <laughs> apparently, uh, you know, Jim Starlin brought the character to Marvel, Roy made some changes because originally the character had a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this is from, you know, what Roy mentioned in his introduction to the Iron Fist Masterworks Volume 1. He said, like, like he had to ask... Uh, Starlin and, and Engelhardt to make some changes to, to the character of Shang-Chi. And then eventually they did, and it turned out to be, you know, uh, to work for Marvel Editorial, and they greenlit the project. And then Engelhardt and Starlin went ahead and did it. But Roy also suggested that they use, of course, the cast of Sax Romer's Fu Manchu series. So we'll talk a little bit about that, Billy. I first want to ask you, did you ever read any of Fu Man- the Fu Manchu novels by Sax Romer? I actually just bought a paperback um, within the last couple of weeks when I was creeping around a uh, an antique store, and they were they had a, a ton of paperbacks in this one section for a dollar a piece, and there was one there, and I thought I got to grab this and check this out. <laughs> yeah, man. I okay. I read um, a couple of them when I was younger because I was a, a obviously because of the. Um, comic book series Master of Kung Fu and I I remembered enjoying them when I was younger but now that my sensibilities have changed they're horribly racist they're probably but you but you have to kind of read them you know as a dated as as a sort of a piece of the past you know believe you can understand how these guys thought these um, British imperialists and colonialists you know this is how they look down Mm -hmm. upon their subjects (laughs) So, which Sax Romer definitely did. But, you know, the character of Fu Manchu is fascinating because it deals with this whole fear of the Westerners, you know, the the fear that Westerners have of what they call the yellow peril, of course, you know. Mm -hmm. So we've we've got many characters like that. And I think, Billy, um, another instance where you would, uh, you and I both um, have some, you know, inroads into the character other than comics is through Christopher Lee, who starred in the you know, um, Fu Manchu, a couple of Fu Manchu movies in the 1950s, and even mm-hmm. Boris Karloff, you know, earlier, uh, he oh, yeah. he played Fu Manchu in the 1930s. So, you know, that you had all of this. Uh, Fu Manchu was definitely a part of popular culture at one point in time. But then, you know, it fell off. Uh, you know, it wasn't being reprinted. But then 
for some strange reason, the paperbacks came into prominence again and were reprinted again in the late 60s and early 70s. And that's where Roy Thomas, when he was scouting around for properties to uh, license, uh, he happened upon the, the, the novels and he decided to uh, get the license so that they could uh, use those characters in comics. And um, he did the same with Conan, of course, and with King Cole from Robert E. Howard and with Thongor from Lynn Carter. So they were looking mm-hmm. for things that were popular at the time. You know, Michael Moorcock's Elric would later also appear. And then he happened upon Sex Romer's Gong, uh, Fu Manchu. So this is a fascinating universe because, mm-hmm. um, of course, this guy's an evil mastermind, right? Um, yeah. But he, he does not only deal in... Uh, criminal intrigue. He's also a scientist, an alchemist, a biologist. He um, creates poisons to to take out his foes. He's kind of like the ultimate doc- uh, James Bond villain who's an Asian. If you think Dr. No from, you know, the first James Bond movie, this Bond, is... Yeah. Dr. No is definitely a direct... Insp- uh, well, he was inspired by Fu Manchu. Mm-hmm. Um, because... So, so this is this Asian um, uh, billionaire villain who has various locations that you know are headquarters around the world and he's in involved in intrigue and espionage and he, his initial goal was to make china something of a of a world power again according to him he hated the colonialists you know he wants to overthrow them and then not just making china great but eventually also wants to dominate the world you know through uh bribery spying spy networks through uh, blackmail, all of that kind of thing. But he especially um, enjoys employing assassins, which he calls the Saifan. And they're his Mm -hmm. elite uh, assassins that that are highly trained. And, um, of course, then uh, enter Shang-Chi. So um, we're just going to... A little bit more history, then we're going to get into the issue, Billy. Um, Basically... There were other martial arts characters who were also big. You know, you had uh, Judo Master from Charlton Comics. Mm. And then you had a guy called Yang um, from, you know, also from, uh, I think it was uh, created by Joe Gill, uh, drawn by Warren Sattler. He premiered at almost the same time as Shang-Chi. And he was very popular too, even though I never read a single issue of this Yang title. And it even had a second title called House of Yang. So, you know, the point is that, you know, Shang-Chi made it big just because he was at Marvel. But there were other smaller publishers who was who were also jumping on the bandwagon of, of what was popular at the box office. And so Shang-Chi, mm-hmm. you know, he made it big uh, right off the bat. They sold like it sold like wildfire. It was very popular. Eventually, Marvel would also invest in a magazine. Right, Billy? And there would even be a giant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the... Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, and there would even be a giant-sized Shang-Chi, much like the giant-sized man thing that they put out. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about the character here, folks. <laughs> of course, you would know that. So, you know, um, after Roy Thomas decided to tie their hero to Fu Manchu's world, though, I think it gave him more depth, right? Believe more world-building. The world-building had already yeah. been done, essentially, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. you know, you would think Engelhart and Starlin then, you know, had uh, uh, multiple stories that they could tell. But then they both left the book uh, mm-hmm. right after, like, the next, I think, Starlin penciled the first three issues, you know, um, starring Shang-Chi, and then they just left, you know, of the Marvel Special Edition. 
So, you know, then the yeah. title jumped, uh, you know, um, around between writers and, and, uh, and artists. And eventually it would settle on uh, great creative teams, Doug Munch and Paul Gulacy. And then later it would be Doug Munch and Mike Zeck and, uh, and also, of course, my favorite, Doug Munch and Gene Day. But mm-hmm. um, the, in the beginning, it was a little bit rocky in terms of who was going to be on the title. Right, Billy, would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like you said. And I don't know why that was. Maybe guy, these guys just wanted to do different projects because you, if you think about it, Engelhart jumped around a lot. He really wasn't stationary on one title for like a very long time. He just wasn't. So I don't know. Maybe he just liked to jump around. Yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, it took a while before he, you know, well, yeah, he's actually never done an incredibly long run. I mean, compared to mm-hmm. other people like Roy Thomas, but he has done long runs. If you if you if you're talking about fourteen issues or something like that, or or twenty issues, and yeah, he has done. But yeah, not like most writers. Most writers like to be comfortable, and you know, they they like to get to grips with something. But Engelhart was all over the place in the beginning. There, yeah, you're right. Yeah, but that shows mm-hmm. how what a diverse kind of you know um, writer he is, right? Billy, he can write a variety oh, yeah. of things. Almost like mm-hmm. Bill Mantlo and Steve Gerber, too. They were all over the place in the beginning there. Oh, yeah. All right. So, Billy, then uh, we're going to get into this now. Um, first, I'm going to give some specs on this uh, uh, first issue which we're discussing, which is specifically Marvel, Special Marvel Edition number 15. And this is the mm-hmm. debut of Shang-Chi, the master of Kung Fu, the son of Fu Manchu, whose name Shang-Chi means the rising and advancing of a spirit. Which is apparently mm. what Stephen uh, Steve Engelhart came up with after he meditated on the I Ching, <laughs> <laughs> because they were into all kinds of mind expanding and and meditative stuff back then, mm-hmm. not just substance abuse. <laughs> <laughs> well, according to them, it wouldn't be abuse; it would be you know expanding and improving their minds. Experimentation. 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 That's right, Billy. That's mm-hmm. right. There were scientists, mm-hmm. <laughs> scientists of the yep, mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, see, oh man, the, the crazy times. I wish we were there. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, special Marvel edition number 15, cover dated December 1973, but on sale in September of 1973. 20 cent cover price, page count 32. Edited by Rascally Roy Thomas. The cover penciled by Jim Starlin, inked by Al Milgram. And then uh, writer, Steve Englehart, penciler, Jim Starlin, inker, Al Milgram for the interiors as well, lettered by Tom Arkowski. And of course, you can find that in this in the um, Master of Kung Fu omnibus that they've recently, well, not recently, it's been five years already now, right? Billy, six or, or yeah, five or six years that the omnibus have been out. They're already going out of print, I think. But there, it's available in the first Shang-Chi Master of Kung Fu Omnibus, or it's available in the ep- first epic collection, which is called uh, Shang-Chi Weapon of the Soul, uh, which might still be in print. I know it's not on Amazon available anymore, but um, you can find uh, it digitally um, on Kindle or, you know, Comixology. Do you know anything, any any further places where they can find it, Billy? Yeah, uh, just a word of uh, caution, anyone out there. If you don't already own this, good luck. yeah there are people selling the epic collection for a hundred dollars used um and then the omnibus i almost think that's that's done as well like because i think the last time i saw it there was somebody selling it i don't know if it was amazon or one of the other like kooky sellers you can find floating around and there was uh maybe a hundred a hundred 
$120 for a volume one of the omnibus. And then everything Whoa. else was just skyrocket after that. Yeah, insanity. That's so, yeah, because of the movie coming out, everybody's going berserk. Oh, so. yeah, that's true. I recently saw a Shang-Chi action figure. Um, mm-hmm. it, well, when I looked at it like six six months ago, it was maybe uh, 30 bucks. And now I, I looked again, and it's now 60 bucks. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. double the price. Obviously, like you said, because of the movie. And, you know, we'll talk about yep. the trailer, you know, at the end of this discussion, Billy. Um, but, you know, I don't own the Epic Collection other than, you know, on digitally. I bought the first Epic Collection digitally just because, you know, I knew we were going to be talking about it eventually. And I like to, when we do podcasting, have it. Uh, you know, in front of me on the iPad dig- digitally, but I, mm-hmm. I bought. I ended up buying all for the Omnibuy because you know I'm such a huge Shang Chi fan, and uh, of course I've got some of the original issues too. Although I'm probably never going to crack them open. <laughs> I don't want them to be, you know, damaged more than they already are. So you know, mm-hmm. uh, well, the point is, both of us we we have this available. We're reading it, but yeah, like you say, it's going to be difficult to get. Oof. Yeah, digital, like you said, digital is mm. probably the way to go. You could probably get the Epic Collection digitally for like 20 bucks or something exactly. like that. So go th- go that route. Yeah, it might even be cheaper now. Yeah, it might even be 11 or 12 bucks. I've seen it the other day going for that. But yeah, yeah. do that. It's it's worth mm-hmm. it, you know. Uh, I mean, the mm-hmm. stories itself. Get it any way, way you can because this is some pretty great comics. Mm-hmm. So, um, Billy, this uh, first story in here... It's just um, titled Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu. Nothing special, just, you know, laying it bare bones, just giving it to us what, for what it is. But the cover is absolutely amazing by Starlin. I mean, do you mm. want to describe this thing, Billy? It's dro- jaw-dropping. Yeah, it has uh, uh, Shang-Chi up front, and he's kicking a sumo wrestler right in the face and punching another guy that kind of looks like Wong from Doctor Strange uh, with a knife. And then there's some hooded figure kind of behind him, and they look like they have no shot against Shang-Chi. But then in the background, you see uh, Fu Manchu lurking, and it's all it's an all-green background, and different shades of green, but all-green background with, you know, like I said, Fu Manchu back there lurking with these giant clawed hands oh. as if he's, you know, ready to... <laughs> oh, it's incredible it's cover. Just it's just fantastic. fantastic. One of Starlin's best... And also one of the covers that I most associate with Shang-Chi. Because mm-hmm. it, it really tells you all you need to know about the character. And then, you know, this scene that's uh, played out on the cover, this is how the, the issue starts, right, Billy? It starts with Shang-Chi mm-hmm. confronting, you know, these... F- f- well, it's three characters on the cover, but it's actually four. Not, not mm-hmm. counting Fu Manchu, because uh, Shang-Chi... The story starts with him wanting to deal with his dad. You know, he wants to um, confront his dad. And in the beginning, you don't exactly know why. You don't even know that he is the son of Fu Manchu until the second page or the third page. So, um, you know, Billy, I'm just going to give a rough synopsis of this. It's not going to be our normal long synopsis that we usually do on Into the Weird. This is just going to be Twitter-style Patreon synopsis Mm -hmm. level. So, basically, the story starts with um, Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, fighting off four of his father's bodyguards in order to confront um, his father for the evils that he's learned his father has been responsible for. Then we cut to a flashback where Shang-Chi is sent on a mission by his father weeks earlier to assassinate one of his enemies, Dr. Petrie, who is now a feeble old man dying of old age in England. Shang-Chi does the deed 
And after killing Dr. Petrie, is confronted by Petrie's best friend, Dennis Nyland Smith, the arch enemy of Fu Manchu. He plants the seed of doubt in Shang-Chi's mind about the veracity of his of father Fu Manchu's words. And Shang-Chi confronts his mother to ascertain the truth. His mother confirms that, yes, his father is, in fact, the most evil man alive and mm-hmm. that he has been sired simply to be a king and a ruler of men. Shang-Chi then decides to uh, face his father head on, taking out his father's bodyguards and a pet (laughs) in his father's secret lab. (laughs) He eventually uh, talks to his father and rather than fight, they decide to part ways, but with the dire warning that both are now lifelong enemies of each other and will seek uh, the other's demise. So that's how it ends, Billy. Uh, very short mm. and sweet for the synopsis, but a lot happens in this issue. I'll ask you first, the the very first fight where Shang-Chi shows up in his dad's uh, secret sanctum, which in fact is located in New York, but it looks like a Chinese retreat from the 15th century, but it's <laughs> actually contained in this giant uh, uh, high-rise building in New York. What do you think about that fight? The first taste we get of Starlin's Kung Fu action panels. We'll be back after a quick break. Ever wish you could sip cocktails and discuss great books with your friends while hanging out in a rundown piano bar? Here on the Literary Guys podcast, that's what we do. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. And I'm author Zachary Kellyan. Each month, we discuss books from two different views of modern masculinity. From both a gay and a straight perspective. From To Kill a Mockingbird to future governors in the jungle trying to kill a predator. We welcome everyone to join our conversation on the good and toxic of what literature and pop culture have to say about masculinity. So pour yourself a drink and join us now for Season 3. Literary Guys. That's G-U-I-S-E. LiteraryGuys.com. I see what you did there. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, the actual first page, splash page, you see, you know, Shang-Chi running towards, you know, the reader with Fu Manchu's face in the background there. And it almost looks like the window from Dr. Strange's sanctum there in the background. Oh, yeah, <laughs> good, good point. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so what, is, the anomaly <laughs> Rue, Starlin? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of wild there. But anyway, yeah, like you said, you get to the fight, and you know the one guy has, you know, like a, looks like almost like a samurai sword. And then there's another guy that's got like a metal hand and his giant sumo wrestler. And then a guy, that you know, like an Asian guy with a knife coming up from behind to try to stab him and it's just you really get a sense of what this character and this comic going forward are going to be all about because like I said you get the fighting right out of there but then you get some really good dialogue as well you know it's just oh it's incredible it's it's pitch perfect you couldn't this is like a, it's one of those comics that's 5 out of 5 10 out of 10 you cannot really that's right. anything with this comic it's great that's right great action very dynamic movement and flow and in fact this would be improved upon later on with artists like Paul Gulacy and then Gene Day eventually even Mike Zek you know how good he is at penciling action scenes mm-hmm. but you know Starlin is also a master and you know this is not your typical Marvel fight this is brutal I mean Shang-Chi maims all of these attackers four on one and all of them mm-hmm. Um, international killers of the highest renown. Like you say, you've got the samurai-wielding katana guy. Then you've got this mm-hmm. guy with steel fists and armor. Um, but it's more like an armor mesh, right? Like chainmail. And then you've got mm-hmm. this giant sumo wrestler who's, in fact, the most dangerous. We'll find out why later. Or the most, um, you know, brutal. And Shang-Chi keeps 
he takes on all four of these these guys while dodging mm-hmm. the blades and the the fists of all of them. He's never touched even once, right, Billy? And no. he brutally, I mean, listen to this bit of, of exposition here. Okay, the story is told, and most of Shang-Chi stories in the beginning, at least, are told from the second person, you know, uh, narrators. You know, it's like mm-hmm. a second person narrator. He, uh, you know, um, he says that, you know, it, it's like in all, in, in quotation marks, the samurai sword sings behind me like a hummingbird's wing. It fills my ears. I leap. <laughs> you know, it's like that kind of thing. <laughs> but it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, start, uh, Steve Engelhardt is writing here in the, the poetic language that Shang-Chi has learned, being, you know, sired in this Hunan retreat in China um, for 19 years. I mean, he's 19 years old at this point in time. He's only been living in Hunan, China. This is only the second expedition he's had to the outside world. The first being his assassination attempt, which we'll learn about later on uh, you know Dr. Petrie or his successful assassination and then uh, the second being now his trip to New York to confront his father so you know mm-hmm. he's, he's very much uh, sheltered from the rest of the world but um, he's been trying to be a living weapon by the greatest sci-fi assassins and martial arts teachers and senseis of all so yeah. you know he's not going to let them that, that stop him but he's very much like Captain America was a man out of time right after he was freed from the ice right Billy Mm-hmm. Shang-Chi is kind of like that. He's a man out of time. His ice block being the sequestered Hunan retreat in China, and now he's into the modern world, and he doesn't always know how to deal with it. But, right. But here, basically, he's dealing with stuff he does know about, which is uh, fighting and martial arts action, and he takes these guys out brutally. I mean, at one point it says, when he connects with this guy, this, this um, armored guy, he says, mm-hmm. steel limbs are useless when their connecting spine is snapped. <laughs> so he snaps <laughs> yeah, this guy's, guy's spine. He's, yeah, he must be dead. And then he mm-hmm. kicks the samurai guy in the face after dodging another sweep of the blade. And then before he confronts the final, the, the final guy left standing, the final opponent, this giant sumo wrestler, you know, we see these images of his father's face uh, interposed between panels, and eventually they coalesce into the same image as Shang-Chi's face. And that's when we get the revelation that he he says, you are a fool, Sumo. I am Shang-Chi. I am the son of Fu Manchu. At the same time as we get that revelation, his face and Fu Manchu fuses. And then it becomes mm-hmm. the face of Fu Manchu eventually again. So then it cuts to the flashback. Isn't that a brilliant bit of storytelling technique there? Oh, yeah. yeah. And like you said, you're not kidding. Brutal. Like, he snapped that guy's spine. You know he's dead. And then the other guy, I almost thought it looked like he kicked him in the throat. So he probably crushed that guy's throat. So he's dead, too. Yeah, yeah. And not even once was he touched. So you already know this guy's... No. He's, well, a very, very dangerous opponent, Shang-Chi. And uh, no weapons, mm-hmm. you know, he, uh, he hardly ever uses weapons, although in the next issue after this one, when he fights another one of his opponents, we will see that, in fact, Shang-Chi is a master of weapons as well, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but uh, normally he engages folks just, you know, um, a barehanded. Um, he's, a you know, uh, more than adequate. He can even superhuman foes, right, Billy? Because there's nothing superhuman about Shang-Chi. He's, mm-hmm. he's just got the superhuman level of training that, that he was given. Um, and that's why he's so good. Mm-hmm. So he, he takes, he's taken out many superhuman foes throughout his long tenure in Marvel. 
So then we cut mm-hmm. to this flashback and we, we see Fu Manchu sending him on this mission. And Shang-Chi is already questioning him, right? He's thinking, wait a minute. Uh, how can my father, who's supposedly an honorable man, ask me to assassinate an old, uh, you know, enemy of his who's in- essentially almost 90 years old and who's dying on, who's lying on his deathbed? But, you mm-hmm. know, since he's been trained to obey, he, he goes to England. He does, in fact, uh, kill Dr. Petrie <laughs> in his own home yeah. while he's lying bedridden with a karate chop to the neck. <laughs> right, Billy? Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. that's in a disturbing bit of a four-panel sequence where he lies him, where he leaves Doctor Petrie lying dead on the bed, and then mm-hmm. he's confronted by Dennis Nyland Smith, who, who's going to kill him? He's going to blow his brains out because he says that you're one of Fu Manchu's assassins. You killed my oldest friend. Prepare for your death. I'm gonna, I'm gonna decorate the walls with your brain matter. And then, mm-hmm. Billy, what happens? This is incredible. Well, yeah, he's behind Shang Chi and. In like a split second, he does like a, a spinning attack and kicks the gun right out of the guy's hand. <laughs> yeah, he kicks the gun from Dennis Nyland's hand before he could even pull the trigger. And, the, mm-hmm. you know, Dennis Smith says, good Lord, man, no one can move with such speed. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, you know, it ends with him saying, Shang-Chi is the son of Fu Manchu. And he's about to leave when suddenly he sees that Dennis Nyland Smith is crying over the death of Petrie and... Shang-Chi does not understand why. So then Dennis Nyland Smith, you know, uh, Shang-Chi calls Dr. Petrie evil. Like, how can you weep for such an evil man? And then Dennis Nyland F- Smith becomes even more incensed, right? But he says, evil, evil, I'll tell you about evil. And it's this great panel mm-hmm. where his face is red and the background becomes red with his anger. And then there's an amazing, what would you call mm. that? A splash page, I think, but it's got two panels at the yeah. top. But it's essentially a big splash of Fu Manchu and all the evils he's done. Uh, that mm, is a fantastic page, right? But Fu Manchu standing in the center of this panel with him surrounded by all his evil, a skull signifying death, these sinister cat-like eyes in the darkness behind him, a rat, a beautiful woman, which in fact he, <laughs> he sometimes employs these beautiful female assassins, a gang mm. of thugs, Saifan assassins, and then he runs through all of the evil deeds Fu Manchu has been, you know, responsible for. And even yeah. the most horrific deed done to Dennis Nyland Smith. I mean, he's in a wheelchair and he shows mm-hmm. uh, Shang-Chi uh, why he's in the wheelchair. Uh, once when he was captured by Fu Manchu many years ago, um, uh, Fu Manchu's servant, this selfsame sumo that Shang-Chi mm-hmm. is now facing in Mortal Kombat in the present time, crushed his bones to paste the bones of his legs into paste <laughs> as punishment for going up against Fu Manchu after mm. Fu Manchu brutally murdered his partner he crushed he had Dennis Nyland Smith's legs crushed so uh, then he shows him the leg Billy what do you oh, think about so, oh it's so gross I mean Dude. the guy the guy's leg well it looks like he has a wooden foot yeah, and then in between, like the wooden part that goes into the shoe and his knee, it's just this, like this pulpy-looking, pasty, disgusting. Like if you'd like get like a, a sack and put something Ugh. in it and just break it to pieces, and it's just all like in there with some kind of liquid. Oh, it looks disgusting. Yeah, it looks like a tumor <laughs> for a leg, basically. It's horrible, oh, dude. And and you know he uh, Dennis Lyman Smith even ironically says, you know, he didn't kill me. He was more artistic with me <laughs> so he created this 
gross uh, work of art from, you know, Dennis Lannensmith's legs. And, and then Shang-Chi is shocked. So he leaves. And the very first place he goes to is his mother. Now, this is strange, Billy. He's, okay, Shang-Chi is um, biracial. You know, his mother mm-hmm. is an American, um, yeah. a, a Caucasian, and his father being Fu, Fu Manchu. And his mother then, we never see her again, ever. We never. We do eventually meet <laughs> Shang-Chi's older sister, Falo Sui, who's also one of the Sax Romer created characters. Um, okay. Great character. But, you know, um, we never see the mom again, which is very strange. But the mom That's herself weird. is not quite uh, virtuous, right, Billy? Because she basically no. admits to Shang-Chi that the only reason she married uh, his father is because he genetically chose her because she would give him the perfect offspring. And mm-hmm. uh, she uh, did not love him because he was evil, but she decided upon marrying him to to have this son because she wanted a son who would be a king. And that's yeah. what she was promised by Fu Manchu, that Shang-Chi would be set up as a king. And Shang-Chi mm-hmm. was even more disturbed. And then he leaves his mom. He, he, nev- he probably just wrote her off. He never wants to speak to her again. And she's never introduced again either. Mm-hmm. And and we must admit, Shang-Chi was never close to his parents. He revered his father and mother, but they were not at the Hunan retreat where he grew up uh, most no. of the time. He probably saw them each of them once uh, every three months or once every six months or even sometimes once a year while mm-hmm. he was being trained and schooled in the arts of uh, um, death, but also in philosophy. And he had a vast library that he read. And that's why Shang-Chi is a moral character. You know, so his father did not brainwash him, right, Billy, which is a mistake on Fu Manchu's part. He was brainwashed a little bit by his father's lies, you know, saying that his father was an altruist. But in fact, Mm -hmm. um, Shang-Chi, you know, he had a strong moral core based off of what he had read and what he had pieced together about the the world from from his studies. So then we cut back to the present, Billy, and what happens? This is probably the best fight sequence (laughs) And now he recognizes this sumo as the guy who crushed Dennis Nyland Smith's leg. So before he engages in battle, he enrages the sumo guy by saying, I am the son of Fu Manchu, but I'm going to take you out in the name of Sir Dennis Nyland Smith. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sumo yeah, reckon- pisses off the sumo, yeah, the sumo guy. Yeah, man, he snarls, right? His smile yeah. <laughs> replaced with a snarl, and then they start fighting. And this is an incredible fight, Red Billy. You want to take us through it? Well, yeah, the very next page shows, you know, the enraged sumo guy, and he lands a pretty hefty kick right to the midsection there on uh, Shang-Chi. But then when he tries to really assert himself, then Shang-Chi uses, you know, his just like almost like Bruce Lee type style where he if he fought a larger opponent, he would use his brains and technique to defeat somebody that's much larger. So you have him doing these throws and things like that and kicks and just things that are going to get him off balance and then really hurt him. And just, uh, he just you know beats the crap out of the guy. And then <laughs> one of my favorite panels is this big sumo guy has like a... A top knot? A, 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 yeah, a braid. And he grabs him by the <laughs> braid and swings him around and throws him through a door. <laughs> wow, that is, that is an, a, a great... Uh you know, ending to this epic awesome. fight. Yeah, it's like a two-page <laughs> fight filled with, with action panels and eventually he hurls him through this door and then Shang-Chi, he enters this this doorway that's now been exposed and he walks down to his dad's secret laboratory, which he's never seen mm-hmm. or witnessed before. So now he's going to 
<laughs> see the full extent of his dad's evil, but he he thinks that there's no not nothing or no one left to oppose him. But we see following in his footsteps something sinister and monstrous, right, Billy? Mm-hmm. And oh then, yeah, and yeah. You- yeah, you sorry. See that leg at first. Yeah, the leg, <laughs> yeah. that hairy leg. <laughs> and, then a sh- and then a shadow. <laughs> oh yeah, later on the shadow. Oh, it's going to be great. Mm-hmm. And but but then we were treated to another page, which is just I, I drool over this page a lot. It's Shang Chi in the lab of his father, and you have mm-hmm. all these sinister paraphernalia, you know, around. You have these <laughs> test tubes, these this green glowing liquid, poison being synthesized, a skull. You for these uh, these rats. And then, Billy, you have uh, the shadow following Shang-Chi, stalking him, and eventually it, uh, you know, reveals itself. And and what is it, Billy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Shang-Chi says, a gorilla. But I don't know what kind of a gorilla this is. He must have been experimented on by... uh, He was, yeah. Yeah. It's a genetically modified gorilla who, according Mm -hmm. to Fu Manchu's files, which, uh, you know, they quote here, or they they provide an excerpt, Mm -hmm. From the files of Dr. Fu Manchu, July 1968, this is his own notes from his own, well, one of his many, many journals, scientific journals. He says, uh, success mm-hmm. greeted me today. Experimentation with the, the ape has given it a definitely developed brain. So this ape has been genetically modified and he turned it into mm-hmm. a psychopath through psychological <laughs> trauma. So this is a not just Jeez. any, yeah, he turned this one into a <laughs> schizophrenic, psychopathic <laughs> ape. Uh, who's Crazy. now the alter, the perfect guardian to his secret lab. And then mm-hmm. Shang-Chi, he sees immediately that the primeval force of this gorilla, you know, is dangerous. So he goes straight for the eyes, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Billy, do you see? He mm-hmm. he uh, <laughs> makes a V with his, with his fingers, stabs this ape in the <laughs> eyes, blinding this ape, and then ducks beneath the ape, slams his fist into the ape's chin, and then... As the ape rips open his shirt, never touching his skin, though, Shang-Chi dodges and -hmm. then kicks this brazier, this flaming brazier, into the ape with another sweeping uh, roundhouse kick. And then the Mm -hmm. ape is on fire. He charges towards Shang-Chi, enraged, and Shang-Chi dodges and hurls him down the stairway, (laughs) down the stairwell, where the ape dies in fiery agony. (laughs) And then at the end of this fantastic battle... Fu Manchu appears and he says, Excellent, Shang-Chi. And then mm-hmm. Shang-Chi immediately wants to attack his dad and Fu Manchu says, Oh, come now. Come, come, come. Let there be no violence between two members of the Manchu dynasty, Shang-Chi. So they just engage in this long philosophical debate, right, mm-hmm. Billy, about who's right and who's wrong. And Fu Manchu, obviously, he realizes he's evil, but he says he's utilizing evil for a greater cause, which is to free China and to do what the Western powers have done to China, which is dominate them in turn. And he will mm-hmm. employ every evil on this planet, which is at his command, to, to achieve his goal. And then Shang-Chi says, and I will oppose you. You know, from now on, you are mad and we are implacable enemies. And then Fu Manchu mm-hmm. ends the discussion with saying, Son, henceforth, all of my powers would be directed towards your doom. <laughs> so he disappears into the shadows, does a, a fading, a fade out act, and then Shang Chi exits this Chinese style retreat and steps into the the, the the streets of New York, which is crazy because mm-hmm. this this 
the fortress of Fu Manchu was in fact a high-rise building in New York. And then, you know, Shang-Chi has left his old life behind and now he seeks a new one. He's basically now a man yeah. without a country, a man without a home, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a vagabond. And so he's yeah. wandering the streets of New York like David Carradine, Kung Fu style. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then it ends with saying, Shang-Chi means the rising and advancing of a spirit. Next, midnight brings dark death. <laughs> so, Billy, a fantastic first issue. I'm sure you loved it as much mm. as I did. Oh, it was fantastic. I was just gushing over it. I couldn't believe how good it was. Fantastic. Now, you know, we, that's not all we have for you, listeners. We've promised you something else, and it's coming, and that is in the form of one of my favorite Marvel characters, um, straight out of the black exploitation era, uh, but it became so much more, and that is, of course, Luke Cage, the hero for hire, otherwise known as Power Man. Billy, we've already spoken about the black exploitation um, craze earlier. You and I are big fans. We we love movies. I mean, we're both big Pam Greer fans, but I also like Jim Kelly. Mm. And of course, oh, yeah. um, you know, the movie Shaft is probably where everything started. But you know, there's many black exploitation movies that I loved growing up as a kid, but I didn't know that they were part of the black exploitation craze. Uh, that's just the way Hollywood calls it. But you know, if you think about it, I mean, maybe I, this is wrong for me to say because you know I, I wasn't there. I don't know. But it, it's not so much as an exploitation, more like promoting black actors and prom- promoting even a type of culture that that. Um, coalesced in the 60s and 70s there for a while a black, a black culture which is great uh, I, I've always been a fan of that so maybe yes I am one of the people exploiting it but I see it more that I want su- to support that because it's excellent the storytelling I mean films like Blackula which you and I both love you know mm. that does not mm-hmm. it doesn't seem exploitative for me uh, but you know maybe this is the wrong thing to say coming from, from me uh, you know <laughs> a, a white guy but I love all those films. I love all those actors. William Marshall, I love him. Uh, Pam Greer, we're big fans. She showed up in Blackula too. I love the original Shaft. Mm-hmm. The new Shaft, I didn't love so much. But And then Pam Greer in Coffee. You know, you had mm-hmm. movies like Superfly, um, Cleopatra Jones. Uh, what oh, what yeah. else? Like uh, Black Caesar, <laughs> Three Way, Three <laughs> the Hard Way, Three the Hard Way. Oh, that was a favorite. <laughs> One oh. of my favorites. Look up this movie poster. The Black Gestapo. <laughs> <laughs> awesome! Oh man, it, there was it, a there was a whole string of horror ones too. Sugar Hill. Yeah. I mean, a- after the success of Blackula, they had Blackenstein. <laughs> oh, Blackenstein! Yes, yes, I remember that. Oh, it's brilliant. Oh, I loved all of that. And then what's? Oh gosh! And then what's the one where it's? Oh, Doctor Black and Mister Hyde. I've seen it. <laughs> oh it's no! Hilarious. I never it's saw that hilarious. one. Oh, I gotta I get to that one. Love it. Oh, love oh dude. It. Yep. Love it. So, you know, I'm I'm a fan of that era, I would say. I'm a fan of the, those actors. I loved it when Jim Kelly showed up in, uh, you know, Enter the Dragon, which is also to get, you know, because a lot of these um, uh, stars from, from these movies were martial artists, you know, and they, mm-hmm. and Jim Kelly was a legit martial artist. He showed up then because they wanted to tie the, 
you know, the Gong Fu craze with the black exploitation craze. He he had his own martial arts movies, but he also showed up in Enter the Dragon because he was a big star, you know, yep. at that time. So uh, that was, you know, for me, they were one and the same at that point in time. I was into martial arts. I was into badass Gong Fu action fighting. And those, mm-hmm. some, many of those black exploitation movies had it, but I was also into horror and many of them had horror. And I was also into just characters who you could see was different from the mold, uh, like Shaft. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Billy, in, growing up in South Africa, we never saw that. We didn't get that, even though they were available in the DVD store, uh, in the VHS stores. We never saw that on TV, you know. You kind of had to go oh, rent right, yeah. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, so I wouldn't say those movies were popular because of the predominantly racial, uh, you know, the racist government of South Africa at the time. But there were not a... You know, there were many racists that I dealt with throughout my life. But, you know, we I moved in a circle where the parents were more liberal. My friends were um, more liberal. You know what I mean? So when I introduced them to a black exploitation movie, they would eat it up. They loved it. You know, and they, you know, when I introduced them to Luke Cage or Black Panther, they loved those characters because they saw that this is something that you don't normally see every day. This is something new. This is something groundbreaking, you know, and, and it was. Yeah. So, you know, after Black Panther was introduced as the first, you know, black Marvel superhero, and and, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, believe the first black superhero, uh, I think, um, you know, he, he never got his own title, though, um, you know, until mm-hmm. much later. The first black superhero who did was, in fact, this man, Luke Cage, Power Man. Yeah. And, and he was not a prince of an advanced scientific African kingdom. He was almost the opposite of the Black Panther. He was a common man. He was a guy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, down on his luck, walking the streets. He had a, he had a, a tough upbringing, um, came from poverty. And um, he was also streetwise, you know. He, he spoke in jive and, you know, he was a um, uh, uh, very interesting character because his philosophy was not based in any grand scheme of, of the universe. It was more like, how do I survive day to day? So a lot of people could identify with him more than they could with the Black Panther. The Black Panther was like a fantasy type character that you would aspire to. But Luke Cage was someone you knew, you know, um, mm-hmm. I, I'd say, if you were at least living in Harlem at the time. and So... You know, Billy, to speak a little bit about the the how this character came to be, this was basically a mandate that Marvel editorial had passed down um, uh, indirectly from Stanley, but also directly from Roy Thomas. And um, Roy Thomas was actually the first to to attempt this. They had to make Marvel more diverse because Marvel was, you know, the 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 house of ideas. They were pursuing new ideas. They wanted more uh, diverse characters. So. You know, Luke Cage, he was that. But the Black Panther had been done. Uh, he was a, a highly sought-after character, but never got his own series. But, you know, Cage did because that was because of, directly because of the films, right? The impact that the films had, the exploitation films, right? right. So he was a new character. They had to introduce something new to, to, to um, you know, uh, go hand-in-hand hand with this craze. So Shaft was released in 1971. You know, that's when it hit big. And then... You know, Luke Cage was released a little bit uh, after that, you know, in um, 1972, you know, specifically uh, June 1972. Mm-hmm. So this was, you know, after Shaft, after a couple of other black exploitation movies had made it big. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, uh, the, later on, you know, black superheroes would become, you know, a, a much bigger deal. But Luke Cage, for the longest time, he was the, the, the sort of the poster child for that, for that image of a black superhero making it big because his title was very successful in the beginning right Billy 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, um, uh, whereas John Shaft, you know, he was the first African-American action hero with his own film series. You know, Luke Cage did that for comics, you know, and uh, even his look was modeled on those black exploitation characters. You know, that garish clothing, you know, that chain link belt, right? Billy had a metal headband, bracelets even, right? Mm-hmm. So, right. um yeah, I mean, he was an anti-hero too. I, I don't think you would describe him as a straightforward hero. I mean, he took, because of the way he'd been treated, you know, throughout his life, he wanted to uh, he wanted to be a hero, but he was going to sell his services, be a hero for hire. Now, many people say that's not a good thing. That doesn't point to, you know, the, uh, you know that, that doesn't speak in the character's favor. But I, I disagree, you know, because look how how he had been raised in this racist system where he had been targeted all his life by white cops. In fact, in the first issue, we see a racist white cop who has it in for him, right? And then when he did, in fact, then become a superhero, he decided, you know, he was going to make a living from this. Because if he had worked a day job, would he have made a living from that? Probably not. He was an ex-con, couldn't get a job, you know, right, Billy? So he decided to now, you know, become his own, uh, you know, entrepreneur kind of his uh his own businessman running his own business so i mm-hmm. can completely understand that was the only way for a black character from the streets to to make it big maybe so uh billy let's talk about this first issue i i really like luke cage because you know growing up in south africa i you know in this racist atmosphere all the time in the 1970s and 80s i didn't you know my my, my mom and dad they were different they they obviously did speak to us about you know that this is not always the way you should see people from other races you should everybody's the same really essentially it's just we've come from different cultures and upbringings so luke cage was my inroads to that you know luke cage and possibly maybe some 2000 ad comics you know like johnny alpha you know strontium dog the whole mutant angle and then eventually the x-men later on in the 80s but at the beginning it was firmly power man for me you know i love mm. i loved reading about a black superhero because i could sort of walk in his footsteps you know and 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 see what it was like for a black person so Mm -hmm. you know this series is near and dear to my heart and uh, we can talk about this first issue now which is arguably almost as good as the shang chi issue or or would you agree i i think it's right up there yeah for me it was just as enjoyable yeah so i loved it i you know um uh, especially the penciling by george tusca you know, sometimes Tusca doesn't do it for me. You know, you can see he's on a deadline. He sometimes, uh, you know, his pencils are not that tight. But in these early issues of Luke Cage, they were razor sharp. They were brilliant, inked by Billy Graham, who is, in fact, an African-American artist, you know, at mm-hmm. the time. So that that's that's it's great that he was on the book. Strange that they couldn't initially give it to an African-American creative team. But, you know, I understand why, you know, because there weren't many of them working in the industry at the time. And Billy Graham was yeah. was very much just starting at the time, so he was not very experienced yet. So, you know, having him on uh, and you know inking George Tusca is a great learning experience for him, and he would eventually go on to to pencil his own titles, right, Billy? And uh, yeah, work... yeah, eventually he takes over and does some penciling here by yeah, himself yeah, a little for... bit later on. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, Billy, do you want to do you have the stats uh, for for this issue? You want to run that by us? Well, yeah, well, like you said, it's. Uh... 1972 was the uh, was the year this came out. So you had, uh, like you said at the time, who was you know Roy Thomas. Oh, brilliant! Um, he's he's just he was a guy that really you know I, I'm glad 
he was brought into Marvel because to me he was the perfect guy to bring into Marvel at that time because he had you know like you said some different sensibilities about how things should be back then to you know kind of diverting away from how they had been yeah where they needed to go yeah I agree I mean they'd already pushed the envelope uh, in Spider-Man earlier by portraying drug use right Billy and and the dangers of mm -hmm. that and uh, so Marvel was pushing the envelope a lot because they were taking strides in, you know, they were wanting to say something. They wanted to have an impact on society, not just, you know, mindless entertainment. Now, I would argue DC too at the time. Lot, lots of comics, you know, at DC were doing the same. But Roy was younger than most. Um, he was definitely younger than Carmine Infantino, who was editing a lot of mm -hmm. DC stuff at the time. And so he was more yeah. willing to take chances. And um, I think he was way more creative in terms of not just um, creating characters and, and storylines, but also in terms of business. And, you know, he was more in tune with the zeitgeist at the time uh, in pop culture, mm -hmm. at least. So, yeah. you know, uh, you're right. Uh, having him come up with Luke Cage, um, you know, which was a mandate, like I said, passed down. You know, create a diverse character, create many diverse characters. Um, mm -hmm. This was the ultimate diverse character that they could have created at this point in time. Black Panther obviously also included in this, but because of this black black exploitation era, Luke Cage, you know, um, shot off like a rocket. You know, it did really well, and then later, of course, it petered out once the black exploitation era ran, ran its course. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. But, but I still kept reading it. I still I didn't pick up all the issues because they were sporadically available. But I picked up a huge chunk of the run, even as a kid. And then eventually, later on, I, I filled it up. Uh, but there were, um, yeah, some of my issues were in such terrible condition that I invested in the Masterworks, which I think there's only three available, Marvel Masterworks 1 to 3. So, mm -hmm. you know, you could also find this issue, right, Billy? This uh, Luke Cage, Hero for Hire, Issue 1, in the essential Luke Cage, uh, mm -hmm. Power Man Volume 1. Uh, it's still out there on eBay. Or you could just read it on the Marvel app as well. Uh, and then you have recently purchased the... Is it also an epic collection, Billy? Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So what's that called? Just Luke Cage, Hero for Hire, Epic Collection, Volume 1. Yeah, Retribution is oh. the name of this first one. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So it it, mm -hmm. it probably collects the first 14 or first 16 issues even, right? Um, it has, let's see, one through 16 of Hero for Hire. And then, of course, the title changed to Power Man. Yeah. Uh, and it has 17 through 23 of that. So, Holy yeah, 23. That's a huge chunk. That's yeah, massive. It, is, it yeah. must run you up like 500 pages or more, right, for an epic. Yeah. Oh, uh, I'll be honest with you. It's a brand new one, too. It wasn't even used that I got. And I got it for 25 bucks. And, yeah, it's like oh my pushing 500 pages. <laughs> <laughs> that is a deal. That's a great deal. Okay, no, so get get on that, listeners, if you don't know. I, I know a lot of the listeners will probably already have this in some form or other, but that sounds like a mm -hmm. great deal. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Billy. So, yeah, we had Roy Thomas writing, George Tusker penciling, and then inked by Billy Graham, and then lettered by Skip Koloff. And then, of course, the cover art, right, Billy, is done by Jazzy John Ramita. So this is John Ramita mm -hmm. Sr., and I really dig this cover art. This is great. I'm a big fan of John Ramita's Spider-Man stuff, but not a lot of uh, his other stuff, uh, you know, because he hasn't done... Well, he he did a lot of stuff, right, Billy? Of course, John Ramita throughout mm -hmm. his, his, oh my his gosh, yeah. life. But, you know, mostly on Spider-Man and a lot of covers. And then he he also, also corrected art most of the time, you know, when he was Marvel's art director. 
in the um, 60s and 70s and even as as far as um, into the 80s as well right Billy I mean he was like yeah, doing yeah, yeah. corrections on Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man even I remember <laughs> in the 80s so you know when people were in the beginning at least thinking whoa this is too crazy what's McFarlane doing with Spider-Man here so but great cover by John Romita um, speak on that Billy what do you think about this um, this this cover to Luke Cage here for hire number one well, so people don't get pissed. Um, it's written actually by Archie Goodwin. So just so nobody gets cranky with us uh, instead of, I think you said Roy Thomas. But oh. I think Roy and Ramita also had contributions. But I think uh, Archie was definitely at least the scripter. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. I've, uh, yeah, I just pulled no. the stats off of uh, Mike's Amazing World. You're right. Archie did write mm-hmm. some of it. Um, yeah, sorry. This, yeah, continue, this cover, Billy. This, this, this cover, though, is great because Luke Cage is front and center and he looks pretty badass but i love like my favorite parts are and you'll get to know this guy he's a scumball it there's this prison guard you see being held back um in the right hand side and then on the far left you see the smoking hot chick (laughs) puffing on a cigarette too because you know it's just yeah (laughs) oh everybody was smoking back then it was just the way it was but yeah yeah that's pretty awesome like (laughs) it's a really good cover it's got some great elements and then sensational origin issue at the bottom yeah, it's it's brilliant. I love it. I love the fact that there in the background there's these um, you know, uh bar girls, you know, and <laughs> a heap of dice, you know, some poker mm-hmm. cards and uh yeah. yeah, this this sexy black femme fatale. Ooh. Um who doesn't actually show up in the book because I mean, if you think about it, uh Riva, you know, uh, the Luke's uh, love interest, she's not like that at all, you know. She's more no, of no, a no. straight-laced gal. But mm-hmm. um, then we get to the first page, Billy, and you just have this amazing splash panel with Luke in the center. Out of hell, a hero. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, Arch- Archie Goodwin was the right guy to also tap for this because even though Roy came up with the concept and the story, good, you know, Archie's scripting here is tight. Uh, he's even got mm-hmm. the lingo down. I mean, not that we spoke like this, right, Billy, but this <laughs> is the way they spoke in the movies. You know, so that's yep. obviously where Archie got it from, but it's written really well. Uh, maybe people didn't talk like this in real life, right? But it's definitely, you know, from the movies at least, you know, they made these characters larger than life, so they made their dialogue larger than life too. But Archie did an, mm-hmm. an immaculate job on the scripting here. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's great. It's, like I said, this is another one. It's right up there with Shang-Chi, like... There's nothing I can nitpick about it. The scripting, the art is incredible. Now, Billy, if you had to give a rough synopsis of this uh, issue, um, mm-hmm. how would that go? I mean, it starts off in Seagate Prison, where Luke mm-hmm. has been, you know, uh, incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, the, the the Twitter style would just be uh, from the hard streets of New York City to Seagate Prison, and now back to the city streets. Luke Cage, a tough guy with unbreakable skin, super strength, and a bad attitude, is here to deal out some street justice to the punks who break the law. <laughs> <laughs> Great, man. Awesome. No, that's that's the that's one of the best ones I've heard. Dude, straight to the point. Yeah, not a lot. I mean, there's a lot of plot, of course, but uh, essentially it's just an origin story. And mm-hmm. it's linear in 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 terms that uh, you know, it's there's not a lot of flashbacks. You know, there, there, there aren't really many flashbacks at all, actually. So in Seagate Prison, you know, Luke has recently been released from the hole, which is solitary, right, in this dark hole for three mm-hmm. days. So he's got sensory, depri- sensory deprivation 
and um, he's being harangued by this uh, racist prison guard, um, Quirt, mm-hmm. right? Quirt. And uh, Quirt's mm-hmm. got it in for Luke. You know, he, he threw him in the hole. He's threatening him, uh, you know, with further, you know, detention <laughs> in the mm-hmm. hole. And then Luke gets into the yard and he's accosted by Shades and Comanche, who are sort of the mainstays, mainstay villains, but they're definitely D-list villains, right, Billy? In Luke yeah. Cage's universe, they're just these punks from prison that Luke knows who, who always have these schemes. I think they have arguably bigger roles in the uh, Luke Cage Netflix series, yeah. um, where they're not always black. I think one is black, one is white, or or one is like Spanish, a uh, Latino. I I don't know, but here they're two um, African American guys, and they mm-hmm. have a yeah, they want Luke to because the brothers, like they say, listen to Luke, they respect Luke because Luke is a hard-hitting, you know, uh, master of personal combat, right? His own personal combat style, boxer-style brawler. Mm-hmm. And everybody respects him for that. He's probably the toughest dude in prison. So Shades and Comanche want him to to join up with them, and Luke takes one of them out with one punch, even after being threatened with a knife. And, <laughs> you know, he knocks out his teeth, and he says, Shades, I'm going to do it my own way. I don't need anybody. Step aside, jive mouth. <laughs> oh it's great oh, it's great and he says mm-hmm. i want out of this hole and the only way i can do that is on my own and then you know uh since you know it's been observed this fight has been seen by rackham captain rackham the warden or well he's not the warden he's the the captain of the prison guards they're waiting for the new warden to arrive mm-hmm. and they don't know what this new warden is going to be like but since he hasn't arrived that rackham's got the run of the joint of sea games prison and he wants an informant among mm-hmm. the the brothers the, among the gangs in the prison so he he calls luke you know he tells quirt to go fetch luke and he says listen i can make it worth your while you've got a parole coming up maybe i can get you off easy if you you know agree to be my informant and then luke he doesn't only turn down the offer he even goes so far as to <laughs> insult the warden Right, Billy, what does Luke say? I mean, the warden says, you scratch my back, boy, I scratch yours. Also a very racist, this warden. Now, oh, after yeah. he says that, Billy, about the back scratching, <laughs> what does Luke say? <laughs> Luke says, sorry, Captain. I don't think anything could make me itch that much. But be sure, maybe I'll just skip shaking your hand when I leave. Ew, <laughs> damn. What? And the guy, yeah. What does he say? <laughs> Why, you dirty... And he says, calls the guard that court, get him out of here and straight back to the hole. <laughs> yeah, but he also, you know, uh, gives an added command. He tells Quirt to rough Luke up. Mm-hmm. Quirt has been looking to do this for a while. So the, the captain oh, yeah. has given him permission. So they throw him in the hole, but Quirt takes off his jacket and he proceeds to beat Luke up. Now, Luke could take out this guy in a second, right? <clears throat> but he can't fight mm-hmm. back against the guard. Because there's lots mm-hmm. of other guards around too, he'll be beaten to a pulp. So Quirt proceeds to kick the stuffing out of Luke, and it it goes on for quite some time, right? Billy, it it you know the the impact of the blows uh, is heard by the rest of the inmates, and they scream and they say, "Stop it, you gutless bulls!" Right? You know he can't fight back against the guard, and then eventually the beating becomes so bad that the two guards have to restrain Quirt. Mm-hmm. But Luke he refuses to crawl, right? He's still trying to get to his feet and Rackham says he won't stop until he crawls but then luckily for Luke just in time the new warden shows up 
and he immediately mm-hmm. grabs Quirt and fires his ass, right? He says, you're out of here, mm-hmm. buddy. But but first, All okay, right. and then he, he talks to Luke. He says, you know, are you okay, son? How bad is it? So this Warden's, Warden's a stand-up guy, right? He's, he's doing it by mm-hmm. the book, and he's also... You know, he's got a strong moral sense and he says like, okay, Rackham, you're, uh, Quirt, you're fired, but I'm going to leave you to cool down in the cell for a bit. And since <laughs> you're no longer a guard, you know, I don't give much for your chances with Luke in there. So they lock him in the cell with Luke. Now, Billy, this yeah. is a great scene. It's been with me since I was a child. This racist asshole. And Luke saying, no, 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 Quirt is trying to defend, you know, he's trying to plead innocence by saying, wait, Lucas. I mean, we should call him Lucas at this point in time, right? Because that that's what his All name right. was. It wasn't Luke then. His mm-hmm. real name was Lucas. Mm-hmm. Lucas, you yeah. can't blame me. I was just following orders. I was doing it for the captain. And Billy, what does uh-huh. Luke say? <laughs> I'm just doing this for me. And he starts pounding the crap out of him. Pow! <laughs> and then the rest of the inmates, they're like, they're cringing. They're like saying, brother, did you hear that? Yeah, that's Lucas. <laughs> Lucas has a wicked way of saying goodbye. <laughs> and then the warden accosts Rackham, who's enjoying the high life in the warden's office. He's got his feet up on the desk, drinking some whiskey, smoking a cigar. He doesn't know <laughs> it's the yet. warden <laughs> coming in, right, Billy? He thinks it's Quirt back from mm-hmm. his beating of Lucas coming in. And then the warden says, mm-hmm. on your feet, Rackham. The desk job's ended. And he spills the whiskey mm-hmm. all over the desk. And he says, you're demoted to a regular guard. And you're on a one-week probation. And then, mm-hmm. you know, Rackham's he runs out of there cowed. But he swears revenge on Luke. Yeah. So, Billy, then the warden makes some changes to the prison. A doctor comes in to see all of the inmates, especially Luke, to see how his injuries are healing. And the doctor notices that Luke is an incredibly powerful and strong individual. He's healing well from the beating. He's healthy. And mm-hmm. there's this doctor, Dr. Bernstein. Uh, he, Dr. Bernstein, he works for... He's got some inroads in Tony Stark's you know, industry... Tony Stark's mm-hmm. Industries have, have bankrolled him to do these experiments. Now, Billy, this is a little bit controversial because there was a scandal in the 1970s, I think, in the States where it was revealed that illegal medical tests had been done on black, uh, you know, on African-American prisoners. Do you know about that? Mm-mm, no. So this was, but this was not done by Archie Goodwin and Roy Thomas and uh, you know George Tuska because they knew about that this was only revealed after the fact but you know it it was definitely a thing that medical experiments were sometimes done on on prisoners in order to you know um, get them early parole you know nothing yeah. as dangerous you know as they would do in concentration camps or anything but definitely they were uh, you know, sometimes they would volunteer as guinea pigs for some medical trials in order to get an early parole. Mm-hmm. So this Dr. Noah Bernstein, he's definitely of that ilk, but he's also very humane. He's saying that, think about it, this this is for the betterment of humanity. It could help millions. And Luke doesn't want any part of it, right, Billy? He refuses uh, because mm-hmm. he doesn't want to be, you know, a lab rat for the man. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, eventually, you know, uh, something happens between his parole, you know, is turned down because of all his violent incidents in the past and repeated escape attempts, right, Billy? So <laughs> then we get yeah. what is considered to be kind of a flashback. 
because Dr. Noel Bernstein mm -hmm. asks him, Lucas, I'm interested in you. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your life? Tell me what happened now. How did you come to be here? So Billy, now we get we meet a very important character, although he would only be important for two two issues. But he's mm -hmm. part of Luke's origin story, and that is a man by the name of Willis Stryker. Mm -hmm. So Billy, do you want to talk about about this origin of Luke's? He he grew up on the street. He he had to, to to take care of himself. You know, they ended up being criminals together. Talk about this origin. I, I find this fascinating. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, it's just kind of like, you know, just they're, they're just trying to survive. So, you know, they're like stealing mm. and stuff like that, but yeah. they're not stealing because they're trying to get rich or anything like that. Just trying <clears> to survive. But then eventually, like, the more they get into it, Willis, you know, his buddy seems to really have like a bit of a sadistic side to him. And, you know, it just keeps getting worse and worse and in deeper and deeper. And, you know, people start getting hurt and maybe even killed and stuff like that. So eventually, you know, Lucas figures out it's like, you know, I don't want to spend my whole life, you know, running from the police from, you know, some of these petty crimes and stuff like that. Like there's there basically there's there's got to be a, an, a better way to, you know, make a living. Um, and there's just gangs and all this violence all around him. You can tell he's thinking about it, but, you know, he wants to get away from it, basically. But. He's having a hard time getting away from it because of, you know, his buddy Stryker that really seems to be, you know, wanting to be like almost like a gang lord. Yeah, exactly. And he does, in fact, eventually become, uh, well, he almost reaches that status in this early uh, origin because he got, gets into the local rackets. He becomes rich. And then, um, you know, after he makes it big, he, he wants to cut Lucas in on the deal but Lucas in fact turns him down in a nice way he says I'll just be slowing you down man so Lucas is already looking at going straight right Billy mm -hmm. and then the, what what happens is they they both at the same time they meet this lady called Riva and she's mm -hmm. beautiful both of them fall for her it's a lover's triangle but because according to Lucas Willis has all the flash you know he has all the money and um, mm -hmm. you know he's got all the the, the charisma and personality and so he ends up uh, Riva's lover. And then, you know, um, eventually his uh, involvement in the rackets and in the, in the crime business gets the better of him. And he's um, accosted by some people who, uh, you know, think that he's muscling in on their territory. Some other, you know, uh, African dudes. And they decide to take it out of Lucas's, of, of Willis's hide. Right, Billy? So <laughs> they start beating him up with brass knuckles. And Willis is a, an, a, a, a kind of like a prodigy with knife throwing. He could have been a circus knife thrower, right? He's that good with knives. Mm -hmm. uh, and he used it on the street to, in those early days when he was, he and Lu him and Lucas were running together. But, you know, since he's, he's, he hasn't been, you know, needing to do that because he's been, you know, almost a crime lord, <laughs> you know, so he hasn't been getting his hands dirty. But, you know, yeah. um, he's being beaten up here seriously in this alley. And then... Riva, you know, she runs. She calls Lucas, who's playing cards down the block, and mm -hmm. she she tells him what's happening. And Lucas runs over to assist his friend, and he proceeds to <laughs> give these guys a royal kicking, brass knuckles or no. Lucas takes them out with fantastic jive in the process, like insults out the wazoo. But he listen to this. He says, "Willis, are you okay? You overstuffed crud. You worked him over with brass knuckles." And the, the guy says, yeah, hero, same ones I'm going to use on you. And Billy, what does Lucas say then as he plants his fist into this guy's midriff? What does he say? 
<laughs> Not unless you move a lot faster. Pork face. <laughs> <laughs> and then he punches the guy into a, into the, the wall and he says, Later, lard belly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's that was the thing too. When he and uh, Willis were, you know, growing up there together, that Willis was more of the guy that was like more of the strategist and the the fast talker, and Lucas was more the man of action type guy. That's right, exactly. Not that Lucas isn't smart; he's whip smart. Oh, yeah, he's no. ridiculously yeah, canny, he's, but he's not yeah. gonna be conniving and sly about it. You know what I mean? He's not sinister. Yeah, yeah. he's not sinister about it. Exactly. Like, he was like, okay, let's let's do this and that. But he's like Willis was a guy that was always like the sleazy ideas of, of yeah. stuff like that. But like we just saw it catches up to him because he thinks he's going to be some big time <clears throat> gang lord. But there's always yeah. somebody bigger, and yeah, exactly. they they beat him up real bad and put him in the hospital. Yeah, man. And then you know he doesn't wake up uh, with a gratitude uh, with a streak of gratitude at all. He wakes up blaming Lucas for the whole thing. Because, you know, uh, actually, we should be more detailed about this, right, Billy? He would have been happy. You know, he would have thanked Lucas. But for the fact that Riva has been talking to him before Lucas came into the hospital, and she says she wants out. She wants nothing more to do with him because his yeah. life is too dangerous. She's breaking up with him. Um, and then he, you know, Willis blames Lucas. Because Lucas and Riva are also tight, but they're more friends, even though Lucas wants something more. Mm-hmm. And in fact, becomes something more after she leaves Willis, because she essentially leaves Willis and then does hook up with Lucas. Uh, but Willis mm-hmm. blames Lucas for that, and he says, "Get out! I, I don't want to speak to either of you." So then he wants revenge on Lucas, and he does. He goes to great lengths to get his revenge. Right, believe he plants um, contraband. We don't know what it is: cocaine, heroin. He plants it in yeah, Lucas. You can't tell. Yeah, you, you can't, can't really tell. tell. It almost looks like giant, giant reefers. But yeah, it, it could be. be yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could. <laughs> it could be like some, yeah. Yeah, it looks like giant you know, reefers like if you co- think about it. Cocaine yeah. or something. <laughs> exactly. They plant it in Lucas's apartment. Uh, Willis Stryker does, and then mm-hmm. he tips off the cops. They, they're there. They've, they've mm-hmm. done a, a search, and then they arrest him, and that's how he ended up in prison. But then, you know, eventually uh, Willis sort of made up with with Riva by lying to her you know saying that he's out and then yeah. you know he kn- he knows Riva's is still in love with Luke at this point in time right because they fell in love in the interim between the hospital and you know the the the, the drug planting right so yeah um she is convinced by Willis that Willis can somehow help Luke get early parole or get out of uh, out of jail so mm-hmm. while she's hanging out with Willis she is caught in the midst of an assassination attempt, a, a, a hit on Willis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, by the self-same guys, well, we assume, that tried to beat him up in that alley. And yeah. um, it's a drive-by. Well, not a drive-by. Willis is in the car with Riva while a car pulls up alongside them and then blasts him with a machine gun. But mm. instead of Willis being hit, Riva's hit. And she's, he, well, he almost, it's its hinted that he almost uses her as a, a human shield, right, Billy? Yeah. But but obviously that's not uh, precisely how it played out. But after Riva died and Willis survived after the car plunged into, well, off of, of a hill through this a barrier. Cliff or whatever. Or a cliff. There, yeah. Willis survived, Riva was dead, and Lucas heard all about it. So he promised a vengeance. You know, he, he swore that he would... Uh, you know, get his own back, and that he would, uh, you know, confront Willis once he gets out of prison. So that's his origin story, 
except for one tiny and very important part. Uh, you know, Quirt, oh, Rackham, sorry, Rackham has, you know, gonna, he's been determined to make life hell for Lucas. So he's, he keeps threatening Lucas and he's saying, you better watch your back, boy. I'm going to make life hell for you. So mm-hmm. Lucas, after telling his origin story to Dr. Bernstein and being reminded of his purpose, and after these threats from Rackham, he decides he wants out, right? Billy? And the only way he can get mm-hmm. out is to, to volunteer for this medical trial, which yeah. Dr. Noah Bernstein has set up. Now, Billy, this is way more elaborate than just doing some medical tests. What is this? Do you want to describe <laughs> this hidden lab, this, this super yeah. scientific Tony Stark level lab set up in the what I only assume to be an outbuilding of the prison? Jeez, what is this thing? It's like a pool, super scientific pool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I almost thought it was in like the bowels of the prison, and yeah. Luke sees it and he says, "Looks like strictly mad scientist territory, including a bathtub for Frankenstein's monster." <laughs> <laughs> and then Bernstein just blames it on Tony Stark. He says, "Yeah, this these equi- this equipment was made by Stark Industries, so it's got nothing at all to do with me, Lucas." <laughs> But he says, yeah, it's an electrobiochemical system for stimulating human cell regeneration. So basically, this is like a healing bath. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like um, a spa, a super spa. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Not quite, but this Mm -hmm. healing fluid that you're submerged in will stimulate your uh, cell regeneration, right, Billy? So um, it would heal Mm -hmm. any, conceivably any disease, any wound. So in order to test this, Lucas has to strip bare naked and then dr bernstein has to give him an injection now lucas balks at this right billy because what kind of an injection is this well he says uh we can't know fully what it will do until it's thoroughly been tested and he says better strip you'll be the one getting in that bathtub and he says one thing doc what can me using it prove to be its effect on disease i don't even have a cold and he goes i know lucas that's why I have to give you this injection first. And he said, infect me to test some stupid machine? Uh-uh, baby. Maybe that's how those other cats you mentioned died, but... And he goes, Lucas, I assure you that there's... I know the risk. It's all a part of the way to win you your parole. Yeah. Again, there's, there, there's Lucas standing there buck naked while they're having this conversation. Jeez, dude, it's horrible. <laughs> Basically, he has to inject him with this... Uh chemical concoction of possibly all the worst diseases mankind's ever known <laughs> so uh-huh. you know he does he goes for it eventually but but with some some arguing but um eventually he realizes this is the only way so he enters this um tub of chemical sludge <laughs> <laughs> or goo or whatever yeah. and then there's even a, a sort of a metallic lid although it's got like a, a bit of a what would you call it? Like a, a bit of a, a window, right? But it almost looks like an aircraft. Or like a gets, submarine or something. Like, yeah, or like even a... a, a, a yeah, it looks like a submarine gets slotted over, you know, <laughs> Lucas's head. And then he's submerged in these chemicals. And then Doc Bernstein leaves. Way to go, Doc. After adjusting the chemi- you know, the, the levels of saturation and the power surging, you know, uh, uh, activating these chemicals in, you know, that Lucas is bathing in, presumably, right, Billy? He leaves, mm-hmm. and Lucas says, yeah, he feels electricity zapping him, and then it becomes a little bit hot, and it feels like he's on fire. Now, this is even before Rackham shows up, because Rackham has been following Lucas. He knows what the plan is. The doc is going to get Lucas's early parole. Rackham says that's going to happen over his dead body. He's going to get his revenge right here and now. 
So mm -hmm. he shows up when the doc's out of the lab and he turns all the dials up to to 10 or 11 or how how as high as they can go, right, Billy? So mm -hmm. Lucas has been stewing in this in this super hot chemical soup. He's inundated by it and he's screaming in pain. And mm -hmm. then eventually Dr. Bernstein shows up, but the system's already overloading. It does overload and it explodes, but it's also shown, at least by Tusca's brilliant art in a fantastic panel, that Lucas is the one who who breaks out of this machine, tearing metal yeah. like paper. And this machine explodes, but Lucas is right in the center of it. Billy, what do you think about that panel where Lucas like breaks out of the... Oh, man, it's, it's brilliant. Tusca draws him heavily muscled already, but mm. in that panel, it's like ridiculously muscled. He breaks out yeah. of this machine. It's great. It's great. And it, everything, it's like a purple background in the Epic Collection. And then Cage and all the metal and stuff is like really, really red with yeah. a little bit of shading here and there. And then, oh, of course, you know, because of the sensors, they have to have a piece of the machine that blew up uh, covering his Johnson. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the idiot Rackham tries to shoot him because he's, uh, what does he say? Oh, the doc, rack him, you fool. What do you think you're doing? And he says, that boy's gone crazy. He's trying to escape. And Cage goes, you freaking mealy mouth. Don't you wish I was? And he <laughs> like pimp slaps the guy. Yeah, he pimp slaps him. <laughs> but the guy's out cold. He's he's almost dead. I mean, Noah Bernstein yeah. investigates him. And, you know, he's he's, he's <laughs> checking him over. And he sees that he's, he's going to die. Uh oh, Lucas is in serious trouble now. And, in fact, Lucas expects him to die because Rackham's not waking up. So in frustration yeah, that he's lost his chance at getting out of, of here, you know, on parole, because he's just assaulted a guard, right? Mm -hmm. uh, even though things might work in his favor, you know, Dr. Bernstein being the witness, but, you know, the, the, his chances of parole is, are flying out the door here, right? He pounds the wall in frustration, mm -hmm. Billy, and the wall cracks. And he's like, mm -hmm. what in the... Uh, it cracked like my fist was made of iron or steel. It's not even skinned. And then he keeps poking at this wall. And he says, I just poked it. And every time there's more of the wall that gets smashed away. And eventually, with one punch, he smashes through this heavy concrete wall. Right, Billy? And he's out. Yeah, like stone. Yeah, yeah. stone. So he's, he's out. He's free. He's going to make a run for it. But you know, the, the guards see him make, you know, running down uh, this, this hill towards the, the, the ocean. And they uh, sound the alarm. They chase him down. And he's trapped on this bluff, right? This little cliff with the ocean right. surrounding him. And then he decides to, to fight because this is the only mm -hmm. thing he's left to do. And, of course, the guards blast him. They, they all mm -hmm. let loose. They shoot him down with their rifles. Mm -hmm. And he falls into the drink. And then mm -hmm. one of the guards says, you know, he thought he had a gun or something. But it was just a, a piece of rock. And then a they, brick or whatever. yeah, they presume that he's dead, right? Because nobody knows that he's superhuman. Although Doctor Bernstein should have suspected something after Lucas like smashed through the wall there. But mm -hmm. um, Lucas, uh, you know, he exits the water, but he he sees that he's only got bruises on his chest, even though he was shot like well, what looks to be like a dozen times. The guards find his bullet torn shirt. They know he's dead. And then mm -hmm. Dr. Bernstein feels that it's his he, it's his fault. So he has this this panel where he laments the death of Lucas. But Lucas is hiding. You know, he's, they search for his body. They can't find it. He steals a boat. And eventually, because it seems like Seagate, you know, obviously it's called Seagate. It was on an island, right? So mm -hmm. 
he uh, purloins this little raft and then goes back to the mainland and he, he he does some odd jobs to make some money. But then eventually, you know, he's, he's moving from place to place. And then Spider-Man style, right, Billy? This mm-hmm. this robber who's just robbed this, this diner, he runs <laughs> from the diner with this handful of cash and a gun. And this, uh, yeah, this he runs straight into Luke. And Luke's like, hey, <laughs> what are they serving in there that sends you flying out like that? <laughs> And this 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 um, robber, he's just like, yeah, stupid, yeah, stupid, flea bitten bum, and he blasts Luke in the chest. Obviously, has no effect, and Luke pimp slaps this guy too. <laughs> That's his go to move at yeah. this point in time. What is he, Dracula from Tube of Dracula? <laughs> Billy? Yeah, yeah. The guy, the the crook says to him, yeah, stupid, flea bitten bum. I'm serving this to anybody in my way, and bam, shoots him with the gun. And <laughs> Luke Cage says, yeah, baby. Well, here's your tip. <laughs> oh, this is some some crazy ass jive. I'm loving it. And then you know the owner of the restaurant. He he says, "Man, you took that guy out like a heel, real superhero, man." And I I want to show my uh, my generosity, my gratitude, right? And he gratitude, yeah. Ends up giving him a cash reward, and then Luke gets the idea for he wants he, what he wants to do because he knows he's got all this these powers. And he and he mm-hmm. and he wants to have a life, but he doesn't want to do it as Lucas because, after all, he's presumed dead. He's going to create a new persona, a new identity. So he visits Riva's grave after getting this brainstorm of what he could do with his powers, and then he mm-hmm. swears on Riva's grave that he's going to do something with his life. He's going to do something that would make her proud of him, and he's also going to get revenge on on Willis for her, since Willis mm-hmm. caused her death. So he starts asking questions around the neighborhood, finding out what what Willis has been up to, and then, you know, he uh, creates a super suit, right? I believe for himself, which is this badass costume. Uh, mm-hmm. These flared sleeves. You know how much we, you and I, love flared sleeves. You know, from Doctor Strange, from Starlin, from oh, yeah. Brunner, penciling those 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 flared, you know, long puffy uh, sleeves. Yeah, yeah, puffy sleeves. Uh, he's got this <laughs> badass collar, but open chest with a V got this kick-ass mm-hmm. chain link belt and this blue <laughs> blue tights with uh, yellow and blue boots which I've always loved and of course these metal uh, wrist guards even though they mm-hmm. call them bracelets it's wrist guards with this metal headband and he never even says sweet Christmas <laughs> right Billy in this entire issue which is what <laughs> no, he's going to yeah, be known for way, yeah. yeah it's going to become a- yeah Sweet Christmas and sweet something else down the line. As I was paging through this when I got it, I'm like, oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be one of the most famous, become one of the most famous catchphrases, almost on par with its clobber in time. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, then, um, yeah, he says the outfit that he's created is kind of hokey, but so what? I'm, I am I think this is one of the greatest outfits in comics, man. I mean... Oh, it's great. It's a fantastic outfit, you know, these this, this almost like a yellow silk shirt, right? With these mm-hmm. uh, puffy sleeves, I'm loving it. And then that's our introduction to his superhero look, right, Billy? Luke Cage, Hero for mm-hmm. Hire. He prints up some business cards, and that also serves as his, you know, new identity that's being, you know, presented to the reader. And then mm-hmm. we see a sinister figure uh, getting the message of this, uh, you know, uh, the, getting the news that this Hero for Hire is taking out his guys. Mm-hmm. And it seems that Luke is doing this free of charge, right, Billy? <laughs> Even though he leaves yeah. his card at the scene 
Because after mm-hmm. all, he's hunting down Willis. And this sinister figure turns out to be Willis. But Billy, Willis has also undergone a transformation, much like Luke. Mm-hmm. Can you speak on that? Yeah, it's funny because when you see the guy from behind, um, he has like a jacket on and pants and almost looks like reptilian. Um, and he says about how he had to fight his way back and, you know, get in with the syndicate again. And then he goes, nobody's going to mess with William Stryker, a.k.a. Diamondback. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's this rip- reptilian look, because a Diamondback uh, snake, right, Billy? A Diamondback snake, snake yeah. yeah. And also, mm-hmm. I mean, signifying he's as deadly as a snake because he's got this collection of knives on the wall. And he, in fact, hurls this knife at his lackey who gave him the news and presumably <laughs> uh, aiming for the guy's cigarette, but he missed <laughs> because the guy's cigarette dropped out of his out of his mouth. And then, you know, he says, find this, find this man, Lonnie, bring him to me. I got me some teaching to do. You know, so Diamondback's after Luke Cage, even though Luke Cage is hunting for him. He doesn't know Luke Cage is Lucas. And uh, then we've got this excellent final panel of Luke walking the mean streets of Harlem with Reba's face drifting in memory, but also in the sky there. And they're saying he picked the name Cage, a man called Cage. Now, the mm-hmm. reason he picked that belief is because he was in prison most of his life. And, you know, th- mm-hmm. that shaped him. That shaped his identity. So Luke Cage is the perfect moniker that he could have, uh, you know, adopted for his new identity. Mm. And then it ends with saying, he walks and waits and thinks of a girl named Riva and knows soon the time approaches when vengeance is mine. So mm-hmm. fantastic first issue right Billy Luke Cage Hero for Hire oh, loved it so good man Tusk mm. so good at drawing Cage you know the the muscles the 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 gleam the you know wow he's 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 the perfect artist for this issue I can't think of anybody else maybe John Buscema but you know Tuska's the man here Billy, now I want to ask you now the final issue of Iron Fist. That's going to be a bit of a shorter one because this issue really is just all about Iron Fist's origin and about yeah. uh, Iron Fist having a fight. Now, Iron Fist was created. We're not going to say too much about Iron Fist because he was basically created as uh, you know a second Gong Fu character after Shang Chi was a success. And the reason yeah. he was created is because Roy, as we know, Starlin and Engelhardt they brought Shang Chi to life, but Roy, he was not really into the Kung Fu craze at all until he saw the Five Fingers of Death with his wife. Mm -hmm. And then um, this is what I got from the introduction to the the Iron Fist Masterworks. Right, Billy? Essentially, Roy was so uh, enraptured with this movie, specifically the part where one of the techniques was called the Iron Fist. You know, one Mm -hmm. of the techniques used in the movie. And so... After he walked back from the movie with his wife, he started thinking over a character called Iron Fist. But he would obviously make this character different than Shang-Chi. This would be a Westerner learning the martial arts uh, and then using that. Um, So it would almost be uh, similar to a book. But but this is after he, he tapped Gil Kane to help him to develop the character. So, you know, Roy had the initial idea for for Iron Fist, but then he, he went to Gil Kane, which he's done in the past as well. Gil was great for character design, 
even though he's not one of my favorite artists, he's definitely a great cover artist and he's a great character designer because he designed one of my favorite characters of all time, Morbius. Mm-hmm. You know, Billy? And, and if you think about it, uh, Kane is better at drawing lithe acrobatic figures, right? He's not better, he's not good at drawing these bulky kind of figures. You know, he's, he's good at drawing Spider-Man. Right. He's good at drawing these acrobatic you know, um, character. So th- he's perfect for a martial arts character, even though he did not stay on the book long. But Roy got Gill to be his partner in crime here. And they mm-hmm. started to do, um, to develop this concept of Iron Fist. Now they were influenced by a couple of things, Billy. Now this might be a surprise to, to most people who don't know, but Iron Fist's origin is very similar to a novel called Lost Horizon by James Hilton. It was a best-selling novel in 1933. And mm. essentially, it introduced the city of Shangri-La. Right, Billy? That's where mm-hmm. the, the city of Shangri-La entered the the, the popular or, or the cultural zeitgeist, I should say, much like the city of El Dorado or Atlantis, you know, 2,000 years previously in, in Atlantis's case. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, Elder, yeah, Shangri-La was the city introduced by this book Lost Horizon by James Hilton. And it, it's essentially about this lost city in the Himalayas. And um, and then the second uh, thing that influenced their creation of Iron Fist was, in fact, Bill Everett, you know, the the creator of the Submariner. Mm-hmm. Now, he had been penciling on and off for Marvel, uh, even in the 70s still. And uh, he had developed this character called Amazing Man for Marvel Comics number one way back when in uh, 1939 even, right, Billy? So this yeah. character, Amazing Man. And this character had a similar origin to the to the premise of the book Lost Horizon because he, he was a Westerner who, um, you know, also found... He was... Uh, he went to the actual city of Shangri-La mentioned in the, in the novel uh, Lost Horizon and he was rescued uh, by the secret order and um, then he uh, was taught their ways you know, um, which was mystical in nature. And then he made an enemy of their leader. And the leader was called the Great Question. Now, you might recognize <laughs> the Great Question as similar to the leader of, of Iron Fist's, you know, f- mythical city, Kunlun, uh, the August mm-hmm. personage in Jade. You know, so Roy took a lot of inspiration from these two sources, from Bill Everett's Amazing Man and from uh, the novel Lost Horizon. But he, yeah. he credits Gil Kane with a lot of this because Gil had read the novel recently and Gil was also a big fan of Everett and the Amazing Man concept. So they brought both brought this together. But Roy was the one who contributed Kunlun because he had been reading up on Chinese mythology. Now, Billy, Kunlun is the city of the immortals in Chinese mythology. That's where the immortals live. And that's why all the denizens of, of Kunlun in Marvel comics are also immortal. Mm-hmm. So, but right. this in, in Chinese mythology, though, it's situated in the center of the world, you know, uh, but, you know, Roy, he situated this in the Himalayas, like Shangri-La from the Lost Horizon novel. So that's basically uh, it for, you know, the conception of Iron Fist. Uh, it was inspired by the Five Fingers of Death. And then uh, Roy ran it past Stanley. And since Master of Kung Fu was so famous, Stan immediately said, Roy, I trust you. Go right ahead. You've got the green light to launch this this property and they did so now billy you and i've got a mm-hmm. bit of a history with the title marvel premiere because in into the weird mm-hmm. we discussed dr strange's marvel premiere run the first two issues of course were uh, dedicated to adam warlock which gil kane helped to reintroduce along with roy but we didn't talk about that of course we were more concerned with the dr strange issues from 
uh, Marvel Premiere 3 to 14. Now, this specific mm-hmm. issue that debuted Iron Fist, this was Marvel Premiere number 15. And right. uh, Marvel Premiere was used as a vehicle to launch new characters, essentially, right, Billy? Wouldn't you say? Yeah, new characters and like every once in a while just a new concept from somebody, you know, or even sometimes tie up a loose end for something that got canceled, you know, stuff like that. That's right. Now, one of the reasons you and I picked Iron Fist is because eventually we want to talk about the the greatest buddy comic of all time in my mind, which is Power Man and Iron Fist, which I grew up (laughs) religiously reading. I picked everything off of the shelf and um, I love that series so much. Now, Power Man had his own title. Like you said, it was first hero for hire. Then it became Power Man uh, with issue seventeen, and then later on, mm-hmm. you know, it Power Man series after Iron Fist was canceled. Iron Fist ran in Marvel Premiere, and then he got his own series. Um, and then after that, you know, they merged the two titles together or the two characters into one comic, and they became Heroes for Hire. And then it was Power mm-hmm. Man and Iron Fist from then on. So we're eventually leading up to that, right, with this Dragons and Jive uh, uh, show. <laughs> so we're going to get there, listeners, but there's a lot of great stories before we get to that, featuring the characters separately, you know, in their separate universes. So Billy, Iron Fist, yeah. definitely our second favorite martial arts character, Shang-Chi being the, the best. But what do you think about Iron Fist? Like, what was your Iron Fist uh, introduction as a kid or... Well, for me, Iron Fist was one that I got to a bit late. Um, I didn't really get heavy into that character. I, you know, I knew who he was, but I didn't really know a lot about him because I had seen some issues. Um, I might have even had a couple, I think, random issues many, many years ago of Power Man and Iron Fist, um, and it, they were okay. It just wasn't something I was into at the time. I was more, you know, Spider Man and X Men and stuff like that. Um, but when I really got into it was when they started that new series in the 2000s. And I think, wasn't it Ed Brubaker that started Yeah, the Immortal Iron Fist. Yeah, that was a fantastic series. Yeah, that added a lot to the Iron Fist mythology. That was great. Yeah, I thought it was incredible. And then that got me to, you know, want to go backwards a little bit more and see what was back before that. But yeah, that, that really got me jacked up and I love the character ever since yeah same I got on to Iron Fist late as well late being when they were already Power Man and Iron Fist and I, I started reading that in the early 80s but you know I never read any of his old Marvel premiere stuff I never read any of his uh, you know the John Byrne uh, Chris Claremont issues which made John Byrne you know well which was basically one of his first uh, assignments at Marvel and also which cemented their uh, fame and then eventually got them onto X-Men. I never read any of those until much later. But uh, yeah, I was a fan because of the Power Man and Iron Fist series. And uh, because of that, you know, I wasn't a fan of the Netflix series, unfortunately. Um, uh, I think it was a missed opportunity. But um, Iron Fist, uh, he's a great character, visually fantastic, right, Billy? He's got Mm -hmm. this green and yellow look and then this high collar. Now, high collars are not you know, great for martial arts characters because peripheral vision might be impacted, but it never seemed to bother Iron Fist because it's a comic. So I I always (laughs) ran with it. I didn't mind it. And then he's got this fantastic mask, you know, this yellow, half yellow face mask, which is sort of a bandana tied around his head, actually, with this, uh, these um, tails, these ribbon tails Uh streaming behind it. He's also got this uh, open collared shirt, much like Luke Cage, which is ends in a V and it's got the dragon tattoo on his uh, body now Roy 
uh, has mentioned that that dragon tattoo of Iron Fist that was actually inspired by another character, right, Billy? Which is interesting. Um, this is a character. Uh, let, let me go through my notes here from the 1950s, and um, he had he, he was a, a cowboy character where he had this uh, target, you know, on his um, on his chest. And um, let me quickly find it here in my notes. Um, <laughs> what is this character's name? I've forgotten his name. Um, I'll get to it as I go through it. But Roy loved the fact that a character would sport this tattoo on his chest. So he, mm-hmm. he took inspirations from, from all over the place. And then, oh, this was a, a feature called Bullseye, Billy. It was actually mm. a Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, Simon creation from the 1950s, a Western-style character. And yeah, he yeah. had this... Uh, this bullseye branded on his chest. So um, lots of interesting, um, you know, things that came to to a head here for Roy. And then this first issue, Billy, um, the, I'm just quickly going to give the synopsis uh, because mm-hmm. it's not it's not really, uh, there's not a lot of story. It's just basically he has to survive a trial in order to be able to leave Kunlun because after all, Iron Fist is in the immortal city of Kunlun where he received his training for the last 10 years he's 20 years now uh, old now uh, ever since he's been 10 he's been in the city and he um, needs to pass these trials now we'll find more uh, we'll find out more about that in Marvel Premiere 16 but uh, during this trial when he's facing off against these four martial artists and he and he takes them out he defeats them um, his uh, the leaders of Kung 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 Lun looks on, and one of them is the August personage in Jade, and one of them is, is uh, UT. And um, we find out that, you know, uh, this is not his final trial, even though he's easily defeated these four masters. Now he must face the trial of the one. And this, this seems to be uh, an unbeatable opponent. Now, during this fight, he, 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 he can't beat this guy, right? Believe this. It, mm-hmm. This guy seems immune to all of his uh, fa- greatest martial arts blows, which is different from Shang Chi because when Iron Fist fights, he even describes the names of his blows, right? Sword arm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. So during this fight, um, nothing's working against this guy. The sword hand, the rock smash blow, the elephant kick, nothing. The that the blow of the hammer, and then uh, he gets knocked uh, for a loop, and during you know, his disorientation, he starts to flash back to his origin. Now, Billy, can you speak a little bit about his origin, about Wendell Rand and his mom and his this uh, Meacham partner of his? Yeah you, yeah, you see him as a little boy and his mom and dad on this, like, not, they're not skiing, but it's like they're in the... Are they in the Alps somewhere or something? Yeah, they're, like, in, they're, no, they're in the Himalayas. Yeah, they're in the Himalayas. They're in the Himalayas. Yeah. Yeah, and their the dad's business partner is there, and at first he seems like a real nice guy, but then you realize that he really wants to get Danny's dad out of the picture so he can take over the company and then put the moves on his wife. Yeah, you yeah. know that's that's essentially yeah. it. It's um, Wendell Rand, his dad, uh, being uh, a millionaire businessman, and uh, his partner Meacham. Rand Meacham, that's the name of their company, they've decided to go on this, what what Meacham thinks of as a foolish trek to find this lost city of Kunlun, which uh, Wendell mm-hmm. Rand believes to have to exist. 
And then for some crazy reason, he took his wife and kid along with him, dressed up <laughs> in these heavy, uh, you know, um, you know, parkas. parkas and and you know, snow gear. And they're trekking up the mm-hmm. the Himalayas to find the city. This is insane, right, Billy, on the dad's part. Oh, so Meacham, he he says he couldn't talk him out of it. He should have tried harder because. Look what happens. But it's all because of Meacham's plan. He was just waiting uh, for the right moment to take out Wendell Rand so that he could be the sole owner of the Rand Corporation, which I don't know why he just mm-hmm. didn't call it Meacham Corporation. Then <laughs> he just took out his name and kept it Rand, possibly as a, you know, to tell the rest of the world, you know, he had nothing to do with the death. He wants to honor the member of his, you know, partner. But, um, you know, essentially, you know, uh, what happens is, before we get to to the bulk of the the main story, I should should mention um, when you know who are the creative teams on this, right, Billy? So Roy Thomas was the writer, Gil Kane was the penciler. Now I'm crazy about Gil Kane's pencils here because he was inked by Dick Giordano. I always thought mm-hmm. Dick was one of the best inkers for for Gil, right? And lettered by oh, yeah. one of my favorites, just because of his name, but also because of his excellent <laughs> lettering, right, Billy? Gasper Saladino. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And colored yeah. by Glennis Ween. So cover done by Gil Kane as well, also inked by, by Dick Giordano. And of course, this can be found in the Iron Fist Masterworks Volume 1, also the Essential Iron Fist Volume 1. Uh, and there's also been a couple of epic collections out that you can pick this up in, The Power of Iron Fist being one of them, mm-hmm. and uh, on the Marvel app. So great uh, origin here by Roy, uh, because there's some intrigue, right, Billy? Similar to the, the Power Man issue. Uh, with Meacham here taking out his dad, you know, Danny's dad. Right. Wendell, Wendell Rand is being basically killed after they slip from a ledge. Um, Wendell hangs from this ledge and he's going to plunge into this this uh, abyss. The, and then uh, Meacham, with his snow boots, steps on Wendell's hand until he relinquishes his hold. In full view of mm-hmm. Danny and his mom, who are trapped on a lower ledge, right, Billy? So mm-hmm. they they saw this guy murdering uh, Wendell Rand, and then Wendell plunges to his death. Now there's a single page devoted to Wendell's death. When he falls down into the darkness of this crevice, he hits. Mm. Oh man, that is brutal, Billy. When he hits oh. the ledge and bounces off of it, and Danny Danny sees this happening as a little boy, ten year old boy, and he sees, and he he knows that he's going to remember that that image for the rest of his life. His dad. Roaming off that ledge. That's a horribly brutal mm. panel. And then it gets even more brutal, right? Roy wasn't pulling any punches here, Billy, because um, Meacham says he's willing to take them back with him, you know, especially since you say, like, like you said, he wants to move in on Danny's um, mother. He says he's always loved her. He can save their lives and they can live hap- happily together. You know, and then, of course, she refuses. She throws stones at him until he leaves them to (laughs) die, you know, Mm -hmm. because they don't have any of the gear. They don't have the compass. They don't know where they are. They just have their their snow clothes. That's all they have, their snow gear in terms of their clothes. So they're trapped on this ledge, and he leaves them to die. And then they eventually make it out. They they don't know where they're going. They're, They're walking through the snow, and then they see a bridge, right, Billy? Now, this is where things, the brutality is ramped up. Mm. because what happens just as they reach this bridge which shouldn't be there by the way now this is mm-hmm. the bridge leading to the mystical city of Kunlun Billy what happens uh, they get attacked by a pack of wolves oh man jeez 
Yeah, it's bad too. Oh man. How brutal can you get? Because during this attack, they run across the bridge, but the wolves, um, they, they're they not daunted by that at all. They're running, uh, they're going to run over the bridge and pursue them. And, and Danny's mom knows that they're going to both be, be killed on this bridge. So what she does is she allows Danny to run ahead and she runs at the wolves and dives into the midst of them. And she's torn mm-hmm. apart. And Danny mm. turns around and he sees this. So he just saw his dad dying. Now he's seeing his mother torn apart by wolves. And he wants to help, but he's pulled back by some rough hands from behind. And then crossbow bolts uh, are discharged next to his head. And then the wolves are, are killed. <clears throat> and it's these people from Kunlun, these guards who show up. But it's too late for his mom. His mom's dead. And then there's this horribly... Um, terribly sad panel, right? Heart heartbreaking panel, Billy, where he cradles her bloody hand against his face, mm. and then we cut back to the trial where Danny's now in dire straits because he's fighting this seemingly inhuman opponent, this giant, right, Billy? And yeah. then he realizes that his foe is in fact not human because this guy brandishes his palms at Danny and shoots knives from his palms, so he he sees this is an <laughs> automaton of of some sort. A mm-hmm. robot, and one of the knives, in, you know, hits him in the shoulder. The second one, he dodges, but he pulls the knife free, and then, in the memory of his mother, having just relived her death, he goes berserk. Right, so he mm-hmm. pulls out all his martial art chops, kicks this robot in the head twice, uh, puts an elbow into the robot's neck, loosening the the joints there, and then kicks him in the face again. This robot's now staggering; his metal has been dented. But then, that's not all. Danny then employs his ultimate weapon, the weapon for which he's been named by the people of Kunlun. He channels his chi into his fist. And then there's that great line that Roy came up with. He says, it merges into one place, into your hand, until it begins to smolder and glow, until it becomes like unto a thing of iron. And then he smashes this robot to pieces. Shakao! You know, with the Iron Fist, which is his signature weapon, this mystical punch. The robots destroyed. The elders of Kunlun salute Danny, and that's where it ends. Now they say his final trial will begin. He must choose between immortality or death. And, <laughs> and that's how it ends, Billy, with a very nice dedication from Roy and from Gil, and presumably from, yeah, from Roy and Gil, saying that this mm-hmm. series is dedicated to the memory of Bill Everett. A most amazing man, paying homage yeah. to his character, Amazing Man, uh, which, in fact, for uh, with a little bit of trivia, right, uh, Billy, we can say that Roy did um, uh, sort of create, ma- ama- recreate Amazing Man in the pages of All Star Squadron, and we'll talk about mm-hmm. that soon. And you know, when we get to that, <laughs> because you and I were also doing the the World on Fire podcast all about the All-Star Squadron, where Roy, in fact, then did use Bill Everett's character, Amazing Man. So they dedicate this to Bill Everett, a great issue. So, Billy, what's your final verdict on this Iron Fist issue? Um, well, look, at, I, like I said, I know I really went crazy about the other two issues, and they are, you know, my favorites. But this was pretty good, too. I mean, this was a crazy origin story, like yeah. you said. And then... Um, sandwiched in between like like bookends with the uh the test in Kunlun. Um and I love that. Like I said, you know, from the 
the Brubaker stuff, like they really expanded on that and all the, the, the tournaments and the martial arts and all the different like people that go to that tournament and stuff like that, they really expand on that in the future. But for right now, it's it looks a lot smaller, but it's still a lot of fun. And the martial arts, just to me, it's not as big of a part of Iron Fist as it is of with Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi. You know, the, mm. Yeah, Shang-Chi is way more martial arts heavy. Like it's It's not that you don't see that in Iron Fist, but it's just... It's more center to Pronounced, the story. Yeah, than it you're is, right. Yeah, than Iron Fist, but still a really good story. And like you said, Giordano, you know, you and I kind of have the same feeling about Kane. Love his covers and sometimes his interiors, but sometimes we do not like his interiors. But uh, Giordano's inks uh, do a really good job here. So love the interiors too. Yeah, man. Oh, no, Gil Kane is a legend. You know, he is a great pencil. It's personal preference, right, Billy? I mean, mm-hmm. my my problem is not so much his backgrounds and he, the detail. You know, he's great on backgrounds, great on detail. Uh, it's more to do with faces and, and, and body figures. Everybody kind of looks the same. These lean, like Olympic-level athletes kind of with elongated muscles. And the faces all look the same to me, really, essentially, uh, mm-hmm. with just a little bit of, of differences in hairstyle and you know, like all these bald guys look the same to me. But in this, I couldn't find any fault with the art. Possibly not only because of Giordano inking him, possibly also because of the brilliance of Kane. Um, mm-hmm. And it was a very enjoyable issue, you know, with because of the art and because of the story. So I'm going to go on record here as saying that of the three issues we discussed for this first episode of Dragons and Jive, my favorite uh, series is definitely Master of Kung Fu. My favorite character of the three would be Luke Cage Power Man uh, but my favorite origin story will be Iron Fist's origin story mm-hmm. because it's so brutal and then he was you know after his mom and dad died his mom by wolves you know uh, he was taken in by the elders of Kunlun and trained for 10 years in the secret martial arts and kung fu of Kunlun and then mm-hmm. uh, in the second issue we will learn exactly where he got the power of the Iron Fist from and how he got that distinctive dragon tattoo on his chest. So, Billy, great mm-hmm. origin story from Iron Fist. Great origin from Luke and from Shang-Chi. And this mm-hmm. is the beginning of something great. That's my point, you know. So, oh, yeah. listeners, now, normally our Dragons and Jive episode will not be this long. We had a lot of extra information to impart as to the genesis of these three issues. Normally, it'll run mm-hmm. about like an hour, hour and 20 minutes, right, Billy? This one was a two-hour affair. But uh, yeah. we hope you enjoyed this very first uh, episode of Dragons and Jive, and there's more greatness to come. Mm-hmm. So check out our other Patreon episodes, the House of Licensed Ideas and our Radio Free Hyboria. And um, come, come back and listen again next month as we have another episode of Dragons and Jive that will be available for your listening pleasure. So believe with that, um, we're going to say goodbye. That's bye from me. And bye from me. And uh, take care, listeners. And remember, do your gong fu and uh, talk your jive. (laughs) And then you might be as cool as Luke, Danny, or Shang. (laughs) Cheerio.